house. No, the right no, house. I didn't get We want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada Water. I said, I want to see a plaster of Paris bagel and cream cheese paperweight. Now cough it up. So I left. Kiki! So I haven't got enough money to get home until I meet this bartender who wanted to lend me the money. That's all right. That's all right. Forget it. Forget it. That's all right. Cool boy. So I go back to the girl's apartment, but her roommate's really pissed off at me for the way I treated her friend. This the guy? Hi. So I march right in there to apologize. Come on! But she'd already killed herself. I was too late. Oh, wow. Lighten up! What is this? Hello and welcome to the This Hot Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast that will think about shoplifting that bracelet before returning it. Every week on This Hot Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we are here to perform the autopsy. I'm your host, Joe Reed. I'm here, as always, with my plaster of Paris bagel with cream cheese paperweight, Chris File. Hello, Chris. (laughs) I am the product of Linda Fiorentino's hands. Um, (laughs) I say that about you kind of constantly. uh, Many have said that about me. Um... So excited to talk about this movie. We're recording this movie later than we normally do. Yes. So you could say that we're recording <laughs> True. it. True. Oh, our commitment. Hours. Our also, commitment to the bit is strong. I love committing to the bit. Um, A certain swath of our listeners will be very happy that we have a new oldest movie we've ever talked about on this. That's true. That's true. Uh, By one year beating out, uh, right? Nuts was 86 or was Nuts 87? Nuts I thought was 87. Okay. So by two years. This is very exciting though. Um, Much as I love to bring up, I have an excuse to bring up Nuts as often as possible because uh, (laughs) what a picture. Yeah. Um, uh, well, and also, too, like, we look for these avenues to, like, maybe talk about older movies sometimes, but also keeping them in our back pocket because, of course, like, right. as I said before, the Oscar race wasn't quite the type of thing where, you know, yada, 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 where we're talking about. However, the filmmaker we're talking about, uh, uh, Definitely has an interesting Oscar era that we yes. will be talking about. We have found ways and avenues to talk about Martin Scorsese as often as possible for somebody who, especially in the last 30 years, very rarely makes a movie that doesn't get any Oscar nominations. So yes. um, we've had After Hours in our back pocket for a while in terms of I at least have been like looking at it like that's a possibility we could do that. And then our guest this week... I've seen tweet about this movie enough times that I'm like, (laughs) we've got to have them on to talk about, like, this is our excuse to talk about After Hours. So I'm going to introduce our guest. We are very excited to have them here. The senior editor at Letterboxd and co-host of the Letterboxd Show podcast. Welcome, Mitchell Beaupre. Hello. Thank you for having me. I'm very glad that my secret ploy to keep tweeting about After Hours until you guys invited me on (laughs) finally worked. Years in the making. I've just been like, will they see these tweets and be like, come on, we didn't get any Oscar nominations. Come on the show. Brick by brick by brick, you have built this wall and we finally have to acknowledge. (laughs) You you were waiting to come on the show so we could all discourse Oh, (laughs) Jesus. 
Wow. All right. That's one. Uh, that's one demerit. You're. I'm taking, I'm taking <laughs> the $20 out to, of your uh, You know, bring the discorsese to the internet. <laughs> <laughs> Lord knows the internet has its fill of discorsese. I feel like that's any time that I see Scorsese's name in a tweet, I'm like, oh, no. Are we do- yeah. not? Are we doing it? Here we go, guys. It's Here like the the opposite of like most of the time you see somebody's name in a tweet and they're like over like seventy. You assume that they died. Oh, and you yes, get kind of that panic right. moment for Scorsese. It's like oh, people are doing the discourse thing with oh, Scorsese. God. It's like oh, never God. a fear did, that he died. Did he say the words <laughs> Ant Man again? Like no, <laughs> God no, not again. Um, okay, uh, so you love this movie and i do have to say for all of the uh discorsese that goes on there is a section of scorsese fans that will if not necessarily say it is their top scorsese but like put it in their top five scorsese movies and whenever i see it after hours on a on a person's like top of scorsese i always feel like those are good and chill people (laughs) (laughs) which is interesting because it's not it's not a chill movie by any means but yeah it's like it's an interesting movie where for such a long time people would say like it's under and people still say it's like really underrated especially within his canon but to me like I feel like so many people have said that enough times that I feel like I would never personally say it's underrated because I mm-hmm. feel like people really love it. But yeah, it's just not canonized in the way that like Goodfellas or Raging Bull is. But yeah, I mean, After Hours is my favorite movie of all time, like period, end of story. So <laughs> It's one of those things where I think on a long enough timeline, something becomes known for being underrated so long that it stops being yeah. underrated. But it also is the fact that, at least for me, like I've curated my online existence so like sharply, like I've sanded down uh, the the <laughs> annoying uh, rough spots of my internet existence so much now that like I will never, if I ever see After Hours talked about, it's only in the most glowing terms, in the most like yeah. while still. My, I mean, my grand theory about a filmmaker like Scorsese is, and by the way, I am absolutely having flashbacks to that SAG Awards uh, speech. I was, where I have been thinking Chris, about Kristen that. Wiig and Maya Rudolph are, are doing the drinking game. The cast of Bridesmaids are doing the drinking game. We're like, every time you say Scorsese, you take a drink. So uh, we have these because we we made up a drinking game when we were shooting Bridesmaids. Yep. Played it all the time, and we wanted to share it with you guys tonight. People at home, you can play along. It's a really fun game. It's very simple. Here's what you do. You have to take a drink every time, and I mean every time, you hear the word Scorsese. Category. You'd be surprised how much that comes up in just casual conversation, because people like to throw that thing around. And Melissa uh, McCarthy is just chugging from the bottle of vodka. <laughs> um, that's this episode. But I think with a filmmaker as well-known and famous as Martin Scorsese, to be as beloved as he is within a certain sort of corner of film fans, you almost have to have those one or two or three movies that don't hit the same way as the other ones so that those people can latch onto that movie and be like underrated like <laughs> doesn't get enough praise and <laughs> i think that we've talked about bringing out the dead i think that's one of those movies from martin scorsese and i think that's sort of essential to building it's not a i would you would never call scorsese a cult filmmaker but like he has mm-hmm. 
fans and appreciators in a way that those kinds of movies that you feel like you need to, if not defend, that's then at least mm-hmm. sort of like make sure that like you like Goodfellas. Let's not forget that he made a little movie called <laughs> After Hours, my friends, like that kind <laughs> yeah. of thing. Um, and so I had heard about this movie for so long and it's one of those. And again, I tend to, in my head, sometimes build up these great movies that I haven't seen where it's like, well, I can't just watch it on like a Saturday afternoon. I can't watch it like after drag race on Friday night. I'm like too tired. What if I fall asleep? It like, would actually kind of be kind of a gag if it would <laughs> rest in peace, VH1 era. This wouldn't be a bad movie to play after Drag Race. (laughs) Yeah, I was trying to think of, like, other movies of his that had, like, as much... And, like, queer queerness is still at the periphery of this movie. But, like, even his other movies don't really have queerness at the periphery as much as this one does. Um, It's it's fully almost this uh, sub... Not subplot, but like sub theme. Is that a thing? Is a sub theme? It is but now. Like, <laughs> there is an undercurrent of it, much like there is in some of Paul Schrader's movies. That is like, could I suck a dick? Maybe I want to try sucking a dick. It is. I that, don't know. That Probably kind of, that not. Cadre... That's how I feel like Scorsese is about this. I've seen some people yeah. call this movie like homophobic or like homophobic of its time, and oh. I don't. Quite I would go the total so. opposite direction. Yeah. I think you have like, to have like... a real hair trigger for homophobia there, where it's just like, where at least just because there is male anxiety in something that also mm-hmm. shows queer people doesn't necessarily make it homophobic. I think Martin Scorsese seems like the kind of straight filmmaker who is, you know, curious about this kind of stuff with at a remove, but doesn't, right. none of this movie seems to be um, sort of pointing and staring at things or pointing and laughing at things even the the you know the leather couple making out at the bar or whatever there's a little bit of a of a lived in quality to that scene that i find that i really appreciate we're like yes they're sort of like always in frame in a way that maybe i imagine certain audiences maybe laughed at a little bit back in the day but i don't think the intent of the filmmaking is gawking so much as just sort of just like new york city man like in all its <laughs> well, glory well it would be so glaring i think if you have this mid 80s movie that is kind of uh, that is a fantasy pseudo satire of lower manhattan like yes. neighborhoods and subcultures to not have leather right. daddies making out yeah like right. any queer people in it at all and the, right. the, that leather couple at the bar like is the most like healthiest like normal seeming characters in the entire movie like (laughs) every other character is like they're so empathetic to poor john hurt and what he's going through they're so sweet (laughs) yeah genuinely um but i also like the fact that it also is part of this sort of tapestry of there's a little bit of a quality to this like yes it's soho in new york city and all of these characters you can sort of feel like there's some sort of experiential quality where it's just like we've seen these people out and around or at least scorsese had in the 80s um around this time but almost like thrown into if not a blender then just sort of just like you're seeing all of these people maybe in like contexts that are a little askew right where it's like the leather couple in the dive bar and you go to this uh uh, Berlin nightclub, which is this punk nightclub that seems to have a, like also new wave people in like new wave uh, outfits there and whatever. <laughs> and 
Um, I don't know. It's just like there's a little bit of a hodgepodge quality to this vision of Soho that I think is intentional and like really appeals to me too. Um, I really, really liked it. I really, I was glad to have an occasion to just sort of just like sit down and kind of, you know, uh, you know, pay really close attention because I'm, you know, I've almost like an assignment or whatever, but it's like, mm-hmm. it's pure pleasure. And at like lean and mean 90, like, I love that too. Like, that's <laughs> great. That's super Yeah. Great. The original cut too was like 45 minutes longer and they like I could cut see a ton of shit out. <laughs> yeah. And I feel like I can't imagine it being that much longer. Like, it feels like it has to be this length for it to like retain the the energy that it has like i, I don't was, know if yeah. you could keep that energy for you know what would that, i don't know like 140 minutes or whatever would be a little bit tougher but i mean maybe if, they could still pull it off do you know if a director's cut even exists or has ever screened or anything like that i would almost it, hope not yeah it hasn't um i think there is maybe some deleted scenes on the dvd sure. i know um like i know of what some of the deleted scenes are and they're like things like John Hurd comes back at one point and like Griffin Dunn tries to like explain that he was the one who like the Roseanne Arquette's character committed suicide kind of because of him. And like, it just is like stuff that like doesn't really feel like it's needed. So I can't imagine that there's anything that doesn't like, even though Scorsese and Thelma like liked the scenes that they cut, it feels like they've, made the right choices to cut these scenes. The I, as far as I know, there's not like a director's cut anymore. such a stickler yeah. too for, you know, the theatrical version of his movies are the director's yeah. cut. Like yeah. he's not gonna yeah. probably... Yeah, how many director's cuts are there? I can't, off the top of my head, I can't think of any. I, I can't actually. either because he's been asked this about other movies too. And he, mm-hmm. yeah. If there isn't a director's cut of Gangs of New York, then I'm not sure there will be a director's cut of anything because like that was the most right. sort of fraught experience uh, right, with, yeah. with a cut of his movie. Um, I want to talk about the production process of this movie and where it came out of, but I want to do it on the other side of the plot description so we don't get too far into it. But um, uh, there's there's an interesting... Uh, you know, behind the scenes stuff of like where this movie fits into his filmography and a lot of and how it sort of too. functions mm-hmm. within its filmography. But I want to do the plot description first. So, uh, Mitchell, you can uh, crack your knuckles and get ready. I'm going to give the <laughs> boilerplate for this episode. We are going to be talking about Martin Scorsese's After Hours, directed by Martin Scorsese, written by Joseph Minion uh, on assignment at Columbia University, I believe was the story that he wrote this uh, for a class, mm. which is kind of cool. Uh, starring Griffin Dunn, Rosanna Arquette, Linda Fiorentino, Terry Garr, John Hurd, Cheech Marin, Tommy Chong, Catherine O'Hara, Verna Bloom, Will Patton as the freshest faced leather daddy you will ever see. <laughs> um, premiered September 13th, 1985. It also would end up playing the Cannes Film Festival in 1986. We'll talk about that as well. Um, let me find my phone, Mitchell, and you can uh, be prepared to give a 60 second plot description. I gotta, oh I gotta, I gotta stop watching. Oh, do you? Okay, then Chris is gonna keep time for you. Chris will call out the. <laughs> The 30 and the 10. And <clears throat> all right. So you tell Mitchell when to go. All righty, Mitchell. You're, if you are ready, your 60 second plot description of After Hours starts now. 
All right. Griffin Dunn plays Paul Hackett, a mild-mannered word processor who gets bored at home one night and decides to go out to dinner. There he meets Marcy Franklin, played by Rosanna Arquette, and they strike up a little fancy. He later decides to go to her Soho apartment under the pretense of purchasing a bagel and cream cheese paperweight from her roommate, Kiki Bridges, even though he's obviously going to try and get laid. On his way, a $20 bill, the only cash he has, flies out of the taxi window and he can't pay the cab driver. Upon arriving at the apartment and starting to hang with Marcy, little things start seeming off and he eventually makes the decision to ditch her and go back home. The subway has raised... Ah, the subway has raisin prices and he doesn't have enough change to get home this way, then leading him to a practically Sisyphean night from hell where he is constantly meeting oddball characters, all of whom initially present the promise of helping him get back home before somehow making his night even worse to the point where he is eventually believed by the entire village to be a man who has been reportedly robbing apartments and an entire mob is formed to track him down and kill him. After hiding out with a middle-aged lonely sculptor who sculpts him into a plaster of Paris creation, Paul himself is robbed by thieves and falls out of their truck back in front of his office the next morning right in time for the new day of work to begin. Boom. And with only three seconds over time, that is better than Joe and I have done in many an episode. Well done. Well done, Mitchell. Damn. I did. I, I tried to write it out uh, beforehand, clearly, and yeah. I definitely skipped little bits and pieces as I was realizing <laughs> the time was ticking down. It's a lot of plot um, to try and... It's, it's one of those stories through. that is so good and feels so um, mythic in a way that it, that you... It's, it's described to... Uh, it's described as akin to a lot of different things. You hear a lot of Kafka. You hear a lot of Job from the Bible. Like, there's, you know, this put-upon guy. I think anything where a character goes on this sort of, like, quest and meets a lot of people in episodic sections seems very Homerian to me. feels very, Mm -hmm. like, Odyssey. And it's not perfectly any one of those things. It's sort of itself in its own way. But it also feels like this... There's a sense of unreality to all of it a little bit, mm-hmm. just enough of it to make, to keep things interesting. And, and he films it in such a way where it's like, it's, it's just, just this side of real. And, um, it's also one of those movies where it's the perfect era of, this couldn't happen in modern day, right? Where it's like, he's only carrying cash and the subway only accepts, you know, cash for tokens and there's no way he can contact anybody else. And it's just like, he's perfectly stranded in this perfectly pre-technological way. Yeah. Uber would make this basically not a movie, period. Uber would, ATMs would, cell phones would. I mean, in that way, I think we're more (laughs) able to appreciate it now in a more modern context because there's a certain element of that, too, that I think helps the fantasy of this movie, the just on the other side of unreal of this movie. Yeah. Yeah. The way that I constantly describe it is like, for me... It is this encapsulation of like my nightmares, like my actual nightmares that I have mm. in a way that I don't think like any dream sequence in any movie has never captured what it actually feels like to be like in my nightmares the way that this movie does, <laughs> which like my nightmares are so often like many people are trying to kill me yeah. and no matter what I'm doing, I can't escape them. And it's like, in reality, there were be so many ways that I could get out of the situation, but in my dreams, I just can't like I'm do it's like the, it follows thing where like I get, you know, so far away, but then yeah. somehow they're still just coming. And this movie gives me that exact same kind of anxiety, that exact same feeling of like, he is trying everything he can just to fucking get home and he just cannot get out of this goddamn neighborhood. (laughs) It's the way in which other characters don't ever seem to fully 
hear what he's saying almost like terry gar like you're sort of talking to a brick wall and like they and so when it's like all of a sudden he looks out the one window and he sees terry gar putting up like a wanted poster for him which like comes together in record time you know lord knows how she was able to get that thing you know mimeographed and whatever in time uh but again surreality uh, or like Catherine O'Hara just sort of like turns on him on a dime and just like keeps like saying things to mess him up. And it's that that dream life thing of just like frustration and like nobody will believe me. Like, I don't know. That's a recurring stress dream that I have is where you keep mm-hmm. like trying to convince people of something and nobody will will understand it. Which is why also speaking of the queerness of this movie, my absolute favorite most like the most relieving scene to me is when he runs in, runs into the gay guy who thinks he's picking him up and mm-hmm. sort of takes him back to his apartment. And then just all he does is just unloads this whole story on this guy who at the very <laughs> least listens to him. And yeah. um, easily my favorite side character in the movie. Uh, Again, wait, the, su- the sweetest man. I wrote down his name too, because um, uh, he'd Rob- never done anything with a man. Robert Plunkett is the guy. <laughs> his character's name is just street pickup. Um, but Absolutely. Yeah, I think that was his the actor's first movie too. Yes. Oh yeah. wow. Um tremendous scene. Really, really but like there's like the the vignettiness of this movie really appeals to me too, and it lets and, the support yeah. character shine. One of the things I love about it too is within that, like so many movies that do that kind of structure, there are ones like sequences that pop and others that kind of deflate a little bit. Mm-hmm. And there can be a lot of like ebb and flow where something starts off really hot and then it just kind of drags out. But for after hours for me, it never feels like one scene is kind of the the downer scene you know it's not like it's dragging a little bit as you're waiting to get back to like the next exciting part and i think a lot of that comes from the fact that all these characters like for paul initially present like the promise of he's finally gonna get out he's you know this person actually wants to help him they're gonna help him and then something happens where like you said they turn on him and then somehow it just gets worse and it keeps like reusing that structure of it but it never you still feel the way that he feels every time he meets somebody you still feel like this is the one this is the person who's finally gonna help me yeah and then they don't he keeps (laughs) getting invited into people's apartments like that's the other thing it's just like he starts off he goes down to Soho to, to meet up with Rosanna Arquette, but like he ends up getting inside John Hurd's apartment, Terry Gar's apartment, Catherine O'Hara's apartment, this the the pickup, uh, the street pickups apartment, all of these people who just sort of like let him in. And it's like this glimmer of like, well, at the very least, I can be like in from outdoors and maybe like crash on your couch or something. Yeah. And it's just like, nope, gotta keep going, gotta keep moving. Um, and ultimately, where like he ends up in this side apartment slash like artists uh studio <laughs> inside the berlin uh nightclub where like it's tough to tell whether the verna bloom character lives there the 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 guy at the bar seems to indicate that she does but maybe that's only to keep like the other people out of there and she's like plastering him in this plaster paris to keep him hidden while like Catherine o'hara and the street vigilantes are like ransacking the place and she's just sort of like working on him and plastering him and whatever and it's just so again just just deeply weird but in a there are there are certain movies like this where it's like an odyssey into the dark underbelly of whatever that feels Mm. like sometimes like the filmmakers need to pile on ickiness and and like dread and all this sort of stuff and like there's dread in after hours but there's a lightness to it that like it all Mm -hmm. feels it never feels very like bogged down or uh miserablest it's just sort of just like it's there's a comedic sort of bounce to it 
What I kind of grafted onto, and especially the idea of how the fantasy, or like the very precise tone that Scorsese is striking in this movie is it feels very much like it is a fantasy or a nightmare or some type of, uh, you know... uh, illusion for griffin dunn's character but everybody else is in a reality like they are real but the experience that he goes through is not in a way i'm yeah. maybe not explaining that very well but it's no it's like his sense. version of the evening is a you know well his uh, workplace doesn't even seem real right his workplace seems like this kind of like that's where the sort of like the Kafka of it almost maybe comes in. This sort yeah, of just it's like, almost yeah. like Brazil kind German of like... expressionist drudgery or whatever. <laughs> These big gates that like open and close. Yeah. And, but yeah. there's like this divide between his experience and everybody else's experience yes. that it feels like, you know, they exist as real people and things, but his experience of them are like just on the outside of real. Yeah. 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 Scorsese in the the commentary on the DVD described um, one of the things that he really liked about it was that it's about like a story that is not like the story and the premise is very, very unlikely, but it's not impossible. And I thought mm-hmm. that that was like a really interesting hook and like it's something that I think excites me about like any kind of movie that tries to manage something like this where you're watching it and it feels so absurd and it's like ridiculous, but it's not it is not 100% like this could never happen. There are not things mm-hmm. that are just like told like so far outside the realm of possibility that you can't still somehow like place yourself in those shoes and feel like this is something that could somehow happen. This is not yeah, un- unable to happen, but it is uh very unlikely and it is it does feel kind of ridiculous, but ridiculous in a way that is terrifying but also amusing and it doesn't ever separate itself from either of those possibilities that this is the scariest thing that's ever happened to this guy but it's also kind of ridiculous there's the one scene where he's like on the fire escape uh hiding from the mob that's coming to get him and he looks into that other apartment and he sees the woman shoot you know her partner and he just says like I'm somehow I'm going to get blamed for that. And it's like a little like self-aware moment of like, this is ridiculous. Well, it's like any one of these encounters are enough for a whole story of (laughs) why his night was so horrible. But then it's, you know, seven different encounters that make up an entire night that make a one horrible night. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I want to talk about this in context of Scorsese's career though, because it comes at like a really sort of, uh, you know, tension point in his career. So he's, uh, he has this string in the seventies where just sort of like talking about it through the guise of Oscar, right? He directs obviously like mean streets is the big sort of like, um, the one everybody looks back at. It's just like, that's where it all began. But, uh, following that he directs Ellen Burstyn to an Oscar for Alice doesn't live here anymore in 74, 76. My underrated Scorsese. It's so good. It's such a good movie. movie. Um, I like wish he would do more stuff like that. perfect performances in that movie. Yeah. yeah. I watched, we'll talk about the, the the first Independent Spirit Awards, but I watched some of it and Diane Oh, we'll Ladd, talk about it. Diane <laughs> Ladd is presenting one of the uh, the director award. And I was like, oh, Diane Ladd, you know, uh, her old uh, Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore director. Uh, 76 directs Taxi Driver, Best Picture nomination among four total nominations. Uh, doesn't get the, the um, director nomination quite yet, but this sort of kicks off his 
his first uh, Robert De Niro era, where it's Taxi Driver 76, New York, New York 77, 1980 is Raging Bull, where he gets a bunch of Oscar nominations, including Picture and Director, and then De Niro wins his second Oscar for that. And a lot of people still, we talked about this when we talked about Redford last week, Chris, where a lot of people are still holding that grudge that Raging Bull got beat by Ordinary People for Best Picture. Ordinary People's better. Ordinary People, that's, I mean, I truck with, I still... <laughs> I can't, I, 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 I don't like when people shit on Ordinary People, but I can't go that far. <laughs> <laughs> and then The King of Comedy uh, follows that in 1980. Which is another De Niro movie, and there I read a quote in researching for After Hours where Scorsese talks about how he went came back to his apartment one day and turned on the TV and he turns on it's Entertainment Tonight and they're talking about coming up after the break the biggest movie flop of the year and he's talking about it and he's like I I kept watching after the break because I wanted to see what the biggest flop of the year was like Jesus. I was curious and he said he came back and he's like they said they said the King of Comedy they said I was the biggest flop of the year. And so you're coming off a king of comedy, and at that that time, he's trying to get The Last Temptation of Christ made, and that falls through. And Mitchell, I imagine you have more uh, insight into this than I do, but sort of that's sort of where After Hours sort of is birthed out of the failure for the first time to get The Last Temptation of Christ made. Yeah, so Last Temptation, they were like, it was pretty much ready to go. They were doing it through Paramount, and they were like getting everything moving. They had locations set up um, and everything, and the but the budget just kept going higher and higher and higher. And Scorsese at that time was, you know, one. I mean, already one of the biggest directors around coming off of Raging Bull. Like, King of Comedy wasn't really like, it wasn't too much of a hiccup for him as far as like how studios saw him. Yeah. So they kept letting the budget go bigger, but then... Because of what Last Temptation was, the book and everything, like there were rumblings of people boycotting it. And then like a specific, I can't remember the exact, the, the theater chain, but one theater, one of the big theater chains said that they would refuse to play it if wow. they made the movie. And so then at that point, Paramount was basically like, we can't make this movie. Like we're not going to get any money back on it if we do make it. And we're basically like, you know, we just can't do it. Like Aiden Quinn was going to star as Jesus instead of Willem Dafoe. There was like a bunch right. of other stuff going on with it. But um, so then they canned it. And then Scorsese like went into a hole basically. And like that was his big passion project. And he had no idea what to do. And especially because part of the decision to can it was because of like Heaven's Gate and the big flop mm -hmm. of that. And like kind of this shift from the like new Hollywood, like auteur driven kind of stuff of the seventies where people like Chimino were getting massive checks to make a movie right. like Heaven's Gate. And then it flopped horribly. The, the directors like that were not getting kind of checks like that anymore. Like they were focusing more on the star Wars of it all. And like right. the sci-fi. Well, and, and on top of that, the fact that like, who knows how many like, you know, religious denominations were going to denounce it and, yeah. and you know, tell <laughs> yeah. people not to go see it and all that. Um, and so at that time, then after hours was this script, uh, like I said, by uh, Joseph Minion, and it had gotten into the hands of Griffin Dunn. Now Griffin Dunn is this sort of up and coming actor. He had been in American Werewolf in London. He's the son of Dominic Dunn, who is this sort of like, you know, uh, gadfly media gadfly writer for uh, Vanity Fair and whatnot. Uh, He's also the nephew of Joan Didion, which is another thing that people maybe don't know that Griffin Dunn's mm -hmm. uncle is John Gregory Dunn, who was married to Joan Didion and all this sort of stuff, which I think is very fascinating. Um, but anyway, so Griffin Dunn gets the script and is trying to get this movie made. And it was going to be made by Tim Burton, which I think is really mm -hmm. interesting. And <laughs> mm -hmm. essentially, Scorsese gets the last temptation falls through. Scorsese 
sort of looks at After Hours and is like, maybe I can do this. And Tim Burton is essentially just like, yeah, take it. Like, go for it. <laughs> yeah. um, which is very cool of Tim Burton, I feel like. And then Tim Burton goes and makes Pee-wee's Big Adventure and everything is good for everybody. I do have to say, because this movie opens with the Geffen logo, which any movie that you see that I think opens Beetlejuice with the Geffen logo, the you yeah. immediately yeah. think of Beetlejuice. Yes, totally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I just think that's an interesting sort of like what if, but I also just like love that the story is essentially that Tim Burton was just like happily handed it over to Martin Scorsese. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering, is it Scorsese or is Scorsese? It, I think it's Scorsese. It's Scorsese. Is it Scorsese? Like Prosecco. 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 Is it Scorsese? Scorsese. Yeah, Scorsese. That's what it is. All right, Chris, we're going to let Mitchell take a break. Go uh, uh, gather. <laughs> <laughs> gather thoughts and feelings about our after hours discussion while we talk about the vulture movie fantasy league we have our new update for this week this will be coming out just before the oscar nomination so like get yes. this update so while you don't it's listen hot. to this as soon as it hits your feeds it's out don't yell at us for being late listen we'll We're have another late. update next week don't worry. Hopefully, also, if you are signed up for the Vulture Movie Fantasy League, you are getting my newsletters every week. I sent this one out on Friday, so you had all weekend to marinate in this update from the BAFTAs. Ooh, the BAFTAs. England is coming to tell us what was good this year. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm pretty sure they are going to be telling us largely the same thing that the Academy is going to be telling us was good this year. So I want to get into this. Spielberg. I want to get into this in a second, but first of all, last week, I'll admit, I was pretty smug, making my little bet with you, that All Quiet on the Western Front would absolutely not, (laughs) had no chance of being the nomination leader at the Oscars. I still don't think it's going to be, but after getting an All About Eve number of nominations (laughs) from BAFTA this Uh uh, this past Uh week, Uh and leading all nominees... I now at least must entertain the possibility that you could win this bet to my great astonishment because to the to your lack of $50 I will be putting into your uh uh bank account but you know if Todd Field doesn't get that nomination I will be giving you that $50 and uh be giving $50 to a charity of your choice so yes but <laughs> a lot we'll of see, things in the air we'll see how it goes here's my question though so Movies like The Fablemans sort of bombed at the box office in Babylon, right? Bombed at the box office and thus their Oscar chances took a hit because of that. Because there's this stench of failure sort of on them. And now we're expecting those movies to get fewer nominations. And then something like She Said, which bombs in theaters and is maybe going to get no nominations at all. And yet, on the flip side, and the, and the reason of that is nobody saw him. Nobody cares. And at the same time, you have All Quiet on the Western Front, which is a Netflix movie, which, for all intents and purposes, nobody was seeing. The same, if if we've defined nobody as the same number of people who were seeing Fablemans and She Said and Babylon as the people who saw All Quiet on the Western Front, and yet this thing is this big, huge success, and Netflix is maybe Mm going to push it through to a whole bunch of nominations and a Best Picture nomination and all of that. And none of this has to do exactly with the pool, which is what this update is supposed to be. But I just want to say, why? (laughs) Why is this happening? What's going Um, on? I think because for a certain type of awards voter, uh, there isn't 
as much as it seems like there is, I don't really think that there is a movie for them otherwise this season. Um, because even something like Top Gun is probably too silly for them. You know, these are people who want who want to consider themselves very serious people, but they're so you're saying conservative you know, colloquially snobs. called the steak eaters. You know, this is I hate that fucking term, steak eaters. I, I but don't I know what you love mean. it either because I don't think it's as all encompassing as it you know proposes to be, or is exactly what. Just say no. straight men if that's what you want to say. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that's the for the for not you, but like the people who sort of like peddle in steak eaters or whatever. It's just sort of like my just frustration men. and like I'm not by no means a Nolan head, but like why does this movie, you know, get it when Christopher Nolan has struggled for, you know, respect from, you know, the same groups, basically, you know, this, this movie wants to be a Christopher Nolan movie quite so badly. I kind of felt like I was watching someone play God of War for two and a half hours. Um, (laughs) So I saw it coming, man. And you in your infinite wisdom was like, get Chris on the record about it. I did. I scrambled the jet. Speaking of top Gun. (laughs) get you on the record for this and and like i said i still do think i'm gonna win but now i'm sweating it now i really am sweating it um it's gonna be the nomination leader i i hate to break uh, to you bafta doesn't mean everything but i think that okay so this is my other sign of what my hunch was that from those oscar shortlists it's gonna get in in all of those categories it's going to need to get in all of those categories is it really going to get nominated in every single crafts category no but everyone but it's gonna that have it made to. a short list for, absolutely. But, like, is it going to get costume design? I don't think so. Keep in mind for BAFTA, you know, it's nominated in Academy that uh, in a category that the Oscars don't have. It's nominated for an acting performance that I really don't think that's really going to translate to the Academy. But I do think that director nomination is happening. But, you know. Director nomination is on, is on a teetering edge. I don't think that's an, an, at all certain. But it could be. Adapted screenplay is so thin this year that it I guess it could get in, but it's stupid if it does. And I Have you know. watched it yet? I thought you haven't seen it. I don't care. I'm just saying it's stupid <laughs> if it does. I'm just no, saying. No, there have I to be five better agrees movies. with you that it would be stupid if it got in. There have um, to be five better movies. I will see it. I was probably going to see it tonight, but then I have to do podcast movies uh, yeah. tonight. Um We got stuff going on. I do want to watch it before the nominations come out because it's once the nominations come out, it's crisis mode, and I'm going to have to find a way to see stuff like Puss in Boots and the fucking Whale and whatnot. Um, one of which I expect to like quite a bit more than the other. Okay, so anyway, exactly. All Quiet on the Western Front, 14 nominations. It gets 180 points. It had up until that point in the in the league 40 points. So, uh quite a bit of a boost now it's like the seventh most or eighth most point uh, uh point scoring movie in the league probably one of the you know best bang for your buck uh drafts if you have it on your team congratulations i saw there was a big move on the leaderboard and that person has yep. quiet on the western Point. we've had our first leaderboard change in several weeks mostly because of well quiet on the western front it was a three dollar buy so yeah one of the best values uh the year I will say our two other big successes of the year were not too far behind, especially because the weighted points valued the sort of top of the ballot awards more than the bottom. So like Banshees of Inisherin had 170 points. Everything Everywhere All at Once had 160 points. So those movies stayed in the mix. What didn't stay in the mix was 
The Fablemans, which British people don't like Steven Spielberg, is the thing. <laughs> and uh, It's not a universal thing, but, you know, several movies that have landed with Oscar or landed in, like, the Best Picture or Best Director realm with Oscar did not for BAFTA. You know, like, The Post yeah. was not nominated for anything. Uh, what else was it that had no nominations? I forget. But, like, War Horse wasn't a Best Picture nominee loser you know um yeah one nomination for the fablemans paul dano who was seeming more and more kind of solid for a supporting actor oscar nomination which i'm happy about um but women talking was also another movie that kind of that bottomed out at bafta zero nominations uh rrr didn't get any bafta nominations which i am told it was eligible for more than just the international film uh or whatever their category is film not in the english language it was a short list there but it did not get that nomination or any others so those movies which had been doing well in the league thus far took a hit and i will say i love a points update from something like bafta critics choice was sort of the same way where it's like you've got a billion categories so many different movies are going to get like at least something four movies got their first points of the season thus far moon age daydream amsterdam matilda and see how they run all got one uh wait matilda got two matilda got two nominations the other ones all got one nomination it was all their first points of the season which i is have very to imagine anybody who drafted good luck to you leo grand was very happy with these good luck to you leo grand got what four nominations it did for very a total well good for of that 60 movie. points including daryl mccormick getting a best actor nomination which is rad because like that's very cool i love whenever an awards group will sort of go outside the box which bafta will for the british movies largely i thought after sun would do better and now people are kind of poo-pooing its Oscar chances because it didn't do as well as people thought it would do at BAFTA. That's silly. I think his nomination's going to happen. I hope so. Fingers crossed. <laughs> as listeners are, who listen to our episodes the day after they drop. Or I know. I know. We're going to be proved right or wrong kind of immediately. Um, what else is I'm looking at this uh, list? Okay. Gina Prince-Bythewood gets another Best Director citation. She gets nominated Very cool. for BAFTA. I'm holding on to a sliver of hope that that is a fifth slot Best Director nomination at the Oscars that could happen. I don't know if it's – it's not likely, but it's not so outside the realm of possibility. And so I'm, that's my maybe, like, no guts, no glory pick for Director, and I'm kind of hoping it happens. It could happen. We shall see. I wouldn't we be shocked to see wo- The Woman King end up with, like, four or five nominations. It could get none. Or it could get four or five. I think right. I, you know, there are a few movies like that where like the range is, you know, is pretty big. It so, could just get in costumes. It could, yes. But like Viola Davis, I think, is on the fringe. I think a Best Picture nomination is on the fringe. It's probably on the outside of that fringe. Same with director. But these things could happen. What else on that BAFTA nomination list stood out to you? Um, I mean, they didn't I, like Avatar very much. I'll say that they did. They did not, but they do also only have five nominees in their best fil- film category. True, this is R and t- ours and ten. That's so. maybe my one. The one thing that I like about BAFTA the best is that they stayed. Like, <laughs> I love the top ten, but I also like a precursor that like holds holds tight to their own thing. Right, differentiate yourself. Right, right. I like it. Um. Oh, so this is my thing. 
that I wanted on a more global scale. And we'll only spend a couple of minutes on it and then we'll get back to after hours. I wish we didn't put so much stock in BAFTA nominations as to being what the Oscar nominations are going to be. I understand why, but it kind of bums me out that like the BAFTA nominations come out and everybody's like, well, that's settled. And I don't know. I don't know if it's necessarily, and I, it doesn't make any difference because Oscar voting is closed by this time. So it's not like it's affecting anything, but there is a huge overlap between BAFTA and the Academy. However, BAFTA has very, very different voting practices than the Academy does. Yeah. Um, and I do believe it's especially in the acting branch. There's a huge overlap too. <laughs> this is not this is not an answer that uh, anyone's going to like. But BAFTA matters when it does and doesn't when it doesn't. Right. Like, uh, right. You know, that's that's like when we say, yeah, a globe win matters when it matters, but doesn't when it doesn't. It, you right. know, it's just like it feels like we're just uh, if you know, you know, moving target of what the right. rules are here. I do think that a movie like Living doing fairly well at uh, BAFTA could signify it overperforming, even if that overperformance is just like a Sandy Powell costumes nomination. Even yeah, though she's not nominated at BAFTA, but um it's also I would Classics, love which is very, very good at campaigning with the Academy. I was even weighing today. I was like, is that my 10th slot Best Picture nominee? I don't oh, know. Oh, wow. But... I think of the movies that are sort of cuspy that I would really find myself rooting for, I, I find myself rooting for a bunch of them. Because uh, Living is one. The Woman King, as I mentioned. After Sun. Um, she said I would love to see overperform. I don't know if it will. And... I am still kind of rooting for Triangle of Sadness. It's been a, it's been an underperformer all season they, they, uh, compared to what it we was maybe we maybe had to. the wrong idea with how well that movie was going to perform in the first place. Uh, right, Triangle and Sadness, by I we mean, and by we you mean globally because it was not who just us. Care yeah. about yeah. this? Yes. Um, I'm still very much rooting for Wendell and Wilde to show up in animated feature i tell you i'd be surprised but i am rooting at for this it. point like i'm starting to feel that way too simply because you know it's not shown up in a lot of places and it's sitting right there looking beautiful yep. and being a real fun time sitting there on netflix for people yeah. and uh henry Selick is a legend and don't know why you wouldn't vote for that movie but whatever um, i could see that category going a lot of different ways beyond right. like pinocchio's in marcel the shell there could be a I, G Kids movie no one has yeah. seen in there. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, I'm still, I mean, I'm very paranoid about all the Beauty and the Bloodshed getting shut yeah, out. Yeah, well, that was one Laura of your Quattress early stances. Before they shut yeah. out previous winners all the time. And I just don't think it's going to be a movie that appeals to rich people. Like, I don't think they're going to get it. Um, well, but it also appeals to artists. Like, it, it flatters the idea that of, like, artists making a difference. And I do think that that will uh, appeal. I also feel like if I'm a rich person and I'm watching that and I'm rich enough to be like, oh, I'm worried that my name is going to be taken off of museums, that's a real thin sliver of the Academy votership. <laughs> and, and it's the documentary branch, right? So, like, they maybe right. matter a little. They're Those an people unpredictable branch. They are. But I don't think – I just don't see enough other documentaries this year kicking up enough dust to make that happen. 
But we'll see. Maybe. We'll, we'll see. We'll see. I'm very curious to see if Brett Morgan finally gets through because he's been a notorious snubby yeah. in the past and that yeah. Bowie doc is really popular and a lot of people saw it, but... Popular, but as we just said, it just got its first points of the Fantasy League exactly the other day. So, like, it hasn't been really killing it in the precursors. So, You know the types of conversations we've had all season long. There's less that I'm rooting for this season than things I'm rooting against. Yeah. Um, and a lot of things that are uh, probably solid that I might not have felt that were solid a few weeks ago, like Daniel Detweiler uh, knocking on every piece of wood in a half mile radius. That I am not sounding stupid. I know. I know. I get. I, I get but very suspicious about Daniel Detweiler. Then yeah. things like that sound safer than they did a few weeks ago. I made the uh, bold prediction on Twitter the other day that Michelle Williams was going to pull a Kate Winslet in the reader and get nominated in uh, in supporting. I, if that has happened by now, I expect um, <laughs> kudos you will get full and credit, praise uh, for seeing that happening. However, I would think it would be more likely that she would just be blanked than for that to happen. I have I have put my flag in the sand, and we will <laughs> okay. see how it shakes out we will maybe like again as you are listening to this you may already know how it's shaken out so we will be back here next week with our post-mortem on the oscar nominations and of course we are going to have our class of 2022 episode a full ass episode coming out soon that is going to uh, address what happened at the oscar nomination so if you want more from this from us keep on listening so for now, Chris, and last... uh, soon go to moviegame.vulture.com yes. to check out your Oscar nominees. Check out where you are. I have now ascended to second among Vulture staffers. Nate Jones, <laughs> I'm coming for you. It's going to happen. Um, otherwise, yeah, uh, uh, enjoy the Fantasy League, moviegame.vulture.com, as Chris said. And uh, from there, you can click to a landing page and see the scores and see uh, where you stand and see what's coming up in terms of points, and enjoy. And now, back to Griffin Dunn and his never-ending urban nightmare. (laughs) Bye-bye. Back to Plaster of Paris. Yes. Plaster of Paris, not a bad drag name. Is it Scorsese? Scorsese. Scorsese. You know, he has this indie success with After Hours, uh, where at the even if reviews were kind of mixed, and we'll talk about the reviews a little bit, in a little bit, but like I think it's respected in uh crucial corners and then in 86 he directs the color of money wins an oscar for paul newman uh all sorts of goodwill for that and then he finally gets to make the last temptation of christ and the world didn't end and the (laughs) the, the vatican didn't crumble and um i I remember though i was so 88 is when last temptation comes out so i was eight years old and to the degree that I wasn't really paying attention to like film at that age yet, but I remember being a Catholic, the way people talked about that movie was in this sort of like these dangerous sort of like hushed tones, the way that people would talk about um Selman Rushdie too a little bit, where it's like they would talk about mm-hmm. the satanic verses and it's just like, as a little kid, I was like, oh, the last temptation of Christ, like there's something maybe evil about that movie. And <laughs> I, even though it wasn't yeah. like I was being like told you by my parents. You watched The Last Temptation of Christ and seven days later. <laughs> right. And it's like, I didn't have like holy roller parents or anything like that. But I just remember that like, as somebody who grew up in a Catholic sort of like uh, situation, like that's the way mm-hmm. people talk about it. It's just like, oh, the last temptation of Christ, you know, that kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was always like a little bit like 
as a kid, almost like spooked by that movie. And it's just sort of like, and then I finally saw it and it's just like, oh, like, it's fine. Yeah. 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 I mean, people, yeah, people burn down theaters that were playing that movie. Like, people died burning down theaters. Yeah. 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 Like, crazy shit. Yeah. Um, and then sort of, then we get into the 90s and, and Goodfellas happens, and I think that kicks off a different era. But so uh, this mid-80s moment for Scorsese, I think, is pretty crucial. And as I said, like, it becomes part of, like, the myth of Scorsese and that, like, this was the small movie that kind of was a transition out of one phase of his career into another, and nobody really talks about it very much. And then when people were able to revisit it, it also just seems... And maybe, like, you guys can talk about maybe I'm, like, up a creek on this. It seems like a Scorsese movie in some ways, but then, like, very different than the other ones in oh, other ways. Oh, yeah. one million percent. I mean, every it's almost like everything about this movie in terms of, uh, like, a matter of design, construction, feels very much like it belongs to him. And yet, none of his other <laughs> movies are like this movie, um, which is partly why it's so fun to watch and rewatch. How many of his um, movies feature a cameo by himself in it? I qu- quite a few. Is right? it quite or, a few? I mean, okay, I was trying to think like, of, of of which ones. Yeah, like Taxi Driver, he's playing more of like a character, and like right. he's a, a little bit above a, a cameo. Right. I Hugo, he's definitely in as a cameo. Right. Yeah, I, I can't remember any more. The other one I keep thinking of is Quiz Show, which is not his movie. But, I went like, back. I, I went back and like watched cameo, his big so. scene in Quiz Show last night after <laughs> watching this because you saw because he has such a like Hitchcockian cameo in After Hours, where it's like he's yeah. operating the spotlight. I mean, but, the thing too is that he he kept talking about After Hours as like his Hitchcock movie. Like he was like yeah. within terms of how he was structuring the cinematography and Howard Shore's score and everything. It was him taking like Hitchcock and doing like a little bit of like a subversion of it in his own way. So it feels like a nice. Yeah. Yeah. kind of mix of those things he's so yeah, good I, in that quiz show scene though i watched it again so fucking the good one with him show. and rob morrow where he's essentially just like you know uh, these people will be coming gone and television is going to remain and geritol will remain and all this sort of stuff and i was just like it's a really really well it's like a it's a riveting scene what a great movie yeah. i wanted to watch quiz show kind of a masterpiece honestly. yes i love that movie god <laughs> speaking of robert redford yeah. yeah it yeah, is yeah. so good after Hours also feels partly like it's Scorsese's pervert movie or Scorsese's Hitchcock movie because he's constantly like asking himself, wait, am I a pervert? Um, <laughs> in the way that like Hitchcock seems to always be doing it, but like Hitchcock is maybe a little bit more like, am I a pervert? Yes, yes. I am a pervert. <laughs> I am a pervert. Yeah. Um, yeah I sometimes see people getting hung up on the castration metaphor of After Hours in a way where like it's, it's definitely there. Mm-hmm. I don't feel, I don't know, maybe I'm, I'm giving this movie a lot of leeway but like i don't think it's ever in that really sort of like unpleasantly like male id kind of a thing of just like oh we're like being very like you know it's a male character being very worried about you know these women around him and they're all trying to get him and they're all trying to castrate him or whatever and it's like it doesn't seem that heavy to me i mean i think that's what the movie is like all of these different encounters are you know some type of subconscious you know fear of that but i do think that the movie is very much like satirizing that and not on you know necessarily the side of that but like you know showing the ridiculousness of it you know the the ridiculousness of the like cis male psyche (laughs) yeah he's go ahead no well i was just gonna very quickly just say like I don't know whether Griffin Dunn realizes that when he casts, when he's, you know, 
he was the one producing the movie, so obviously he had a hand in the casting of it. I don't know if Griffin Dunn necessarily realizes that like when he's the center of your movie, you're only gonna really have so much sympathy for the main character. And it's nothing <laughs> against Griffin Dunn, but like he plays these kind of characters where it's just sort of like, you know, you seem like you're kind of a shit. Yeah, hundred percent. Like he though. he is that's the thing that's so great about his performance in it, because he's riding this like thread where you feel bad for him and you want him to get out of here because you like, you want anybody to get out of this situation. Right. Like it seems right. horrific, but he also is kind of an asshole. Like the, the way that he leaves Rosanna Arquette is fucked up and like, just like say that you're, that you're going home or whatever. The you know, signs like, when he say, writes up the signs, like dead body dead arrow body. this way, <laughs> yeah. where it's just like, and the funny thing is, that by the end of the movie, with the mob coming after him, they're coming after him because they think he's burglarizing all of these mm-hmm. apartments, not because he, like, is the suspect in this woman's death. Like, they all seem to realize <laughs> that, like, she killed herself. Like, even when John Hurd's on the phone, he's like, my girlfriend killed herself. Yeah. And I was like, oh, but, like, you know, it's funny that that's what they're after him for, rather than, like, <laughs> maybe, you know, being under suspicion for killing uh, Rosanna. Yeah. Arquette. But he's also he super just... mean to her. Like, yeah. That's the thing. Like, the thing with, like, the... And the thing that eventually gets him to like finally leave like there's you know little weird things going on but that make it seem like not you know it's not all roses but the thing that gets him to finally leave is like the thing with the burn stuff and like him thinking that she is like some sort of like burn victim and like he's uncomfortable with it and like leaves and like that's fucked up like that's well and then she's lying there the dead body and he like pulls the blanket off of her to see if she has the burns yeah oh my god I was like you little motherfucker (laughs) like I watched it I've seen this movie like 10 times and I watched it um, with my partner like a while back and when that scene happened they were like fuck this guy like I'm fucking sick of it <laughs> seriously <laughs> seriously um, all of the supporting actors in this movie are so good I didn't realize Linda Fiorentino was in this movie until I started the female cast is amazing Kiki Bridges is such a fun character she's name. rad I man name. was she like and known it's... before this or was this a big breakthrough for her I think this was kind of a big one for her. I don't know if she was in like a ton of stuff before this. Um, but yeah, I think that the cast in this, that's part of why I think it also feels like a little bit like left of center for Scorsese because it's not huge names, right? Yeah. It's like people who you know from stuff like John Hurd was in Chili Scenes a Winner and stuff like that, which was right. a Griffin Dunn and Amy Robinson produced movie. And obviously Dunn was in American Werewolf London and everything, but like it's not De Niro and, right. you know, Harvey Keitel and Ellen Well, Burstyn not only not big names, but people who wouldn't be in any other Scorsese movies yeah, too. Right, like, yeah. Or hadn't been. <laughs> Okay, 1985, Linda Fiorentino is in both After Hours and Vision Quest, and that was her breakthrough year. Was, that was her uh, first year, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Vision Quest, her and Matthew Modine, and uh, Madonna's Crazy for You. Uh, in Matthew Modine would be good in After Hours. Yes, 100%. Oh my god, absolutely. <laughs> um, Terry Garr and her uh, little out of time it's every once in a while you'll see a character in this movie and it's just like could they be a ghost and like terry gar is the most <laughs> could they could they be a ghost of I all these people that. where she's I just sort of like so haunting this this little uh dive bar or whatever writing notes about like i hate my job help me like that kind of a thing um terry fucking great. gar man no one gives a like who do we have giving terry gar line readings that are just so perfect so funny <laughs> and it's uh, yeah, I, and you get Terry Gar and Catherine O'Hara 
in the same movie. Like Catherine that's just O'Hara. Flawless. Catherine O'Hara playing the only normal person she has ever played <laughs> in her entire career. It and then there's funny. the thing with him, him in her place, and he's calling the operator and getting like his friend's number, and her doing the thing of saying the numbers to throw yes. him off while he's putting the number. That is like the most Catherine O'Hara thing. Like yes. it is. It and is, it's oh so God, irritating. It's so annoying. It and it's so like he's annoying. almost out. And I also love that she uh, drives the Mr. Softy truck and actually calls it the Mr. Softy truck, not like some like <laughs> generic like ice cream truck name or whatever, because those are the ones that would always be around my neighborhood. Um, but wait, oh, the shot in Terry Gar's apartment where all of a sudden they cut to the rat traps next the to the rat bed. Traps. And it's the funniest is because it's like it's so many rat traps. There's so and they're just like <laughs> all right there next to the bed, and you're just like, and it's in that one little shot. It's so funny, but it's just like what a nightmare existence it must be. There's so place. many moments like that that are just like so uncomfortable in this that kind of like unreality way that mm-hmm. is like sort of real. Like the the Linda Fiorentino when he first gets there and he's like giving her the massage and like taking yeah. off the fact that he takes off one of her bra straps is like that yes. that is like that makes me queasy and like stop doing this well but, like and then she falls asleep and just this idea of her like falling asleep on him he's on the couch and then Rosanna Arquette gets home and she doesn't acknowledge it like she gives like a look yeah. that is like she she notices it but she doesn't say anything about it they don't talk about it it's not like a thing where he has to explain like oh no 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 like I wasn't trying to do anything she fell asleep and it's it's that thing where it's like yeah. I don't think this is how that would happen in real life he also but... gets up and then good sits back <laughs> down next to her for some reason it's just like go sit somewhere else man you're so weird um that scene also i that's the scene where he seems like he's trying to like make a move on her by telling her this story about like being in a burn ward when he was younger or whatever and it's just yeah. like like and he see, like, he's doing this while he's massaging her and like is about to like make a move on her before he realizes she's fallen asleep and it's like is that your like go-to story to like, <laughs> it's like you're telling her about being in a burn ward you freaking weirdo he's like you have great skin and she's like yeah no scars <laughs> <laughs> no she's like hardly any scars i think is what she all yeah. oh, right yeah just, and then talking about and that's yeah that's where it gets in her his head that rosanna arquette it's just the scars. weirdest i mean for both of them too because then when rosanna arquette and him get into her bedroom she like immediately goes into telling the story of how her ex-boyfriend snuck through the window and like raped her and she fell asleep during like he raped her for hours all night and she like fell asleep during it and it's like that's very uncomfortable and then they go to the diner where she tells maybe my favorite scene of the movie is the fucking surrender dorothy scene where she's talking about her husband (laughs) husband, and that's the only way that he can come is by shouting surrender dorothy and oh my god it's so i myself can only come if i shout there's no place like home (laughs) can't Um, fully relate but you're you're kind of (laughs) there And then uh, the the Verna Bloom scene towards the end, too, mm-hmm. where she's this sort of, again, maybe a ghost living in the back of this club, where it's just like she's, you know, she's just waiting there. And she's like, she's there all the time. You know what I mean? It's, you know, um, and then they have this very sort of like kind of chill conversation a little bit and a little sort of eerie. And then... um is that all there is? The song "Is that all there is?" starts oh, playing, so and good, like yeah. that song, emits sort of like speaking into singing. So like it's it's straddling both worlds in that way. It's very good. Um, and then she looping back to Rosanna Arquette though, BAFTA nominated for this movie, which yeah. is 
wild but so cool and independent spirit award nominated for lead which is bizarre well because they didn't have supporting categories it was only lead categories because it was only seven categories that year all right i want let's let's talk about this (laughs) let's just go into it (laughs) um the very first independent spirit awards were this year after hours wins best feature that's sort of the it's one of the sort of footnotes in this movie's great long story is that it was the inaugural um independent spirit award winner for best feature to my extreme surprise the entire awards ceremony and i'm using fantastic mr fox <laughs> quote marks for this um is available on youtube through the independent uh independent spirit awards youtube page it is 90 minutes uh a good 70 of which is just talking about like the state of of you know the business or whatever and like peter coyote is hosting and he's saying these like really like you know interesting things about like how important it is to make independent film but it's also like the guy from the film board of arkansas gets up and makes a speech and like the guy from eastman kodak who is sponsoring the event gets up and makes a speech and and there's only seven awards hardly anybody's there M. Emmett walsh is there geraldine page is there to accept um, but neither Joel Does Cohen... Does F. Murray Abraham also give her award and grandstand and make it all about himself? <laughs> no, but when she accepts, she kind of says the same thing about, like, look what Horton did. Because I think that's how she begins her Oscar accepted speech, too. Is um, she says, look what Horton did. And looking at she the was award. giving it a dry run. She, was, like, doing, she was doing the thing that she was revolutionizing yes, award show award by doing the dry run for her Oscar speech. Oh, and the team from Kiss of the Spider Woman is all there. Because there's like seven of Which them. Which was interesting. And yeah, Sonya they Braga. all showed up. Yeah, Sonia Braga's there and, and all these people. And Griffin um, Dunn and Amy Robinson were there, but Scorsese was not. Right. Yeah, Scorsese Interesting was that Kiss of the Spider Woman is their, the first winner for their Best International Film category because it wouldn't have been a U.S. production. A beat out Ron. <laughs> beat out Kurosawa's Ron. Yeah, beating out Ron is some <laughs> bullshit. I'm sorry. The, but, you know, good for y'all. The other y'all. thing, when so... Uh, Diane Ladd and uh, Dee Wallace are up to present the director award. And the tension between the two of them. It's amazing. It's amazing. It's like low-key tension. <laughs> Diane Ladd filibusters for about seven, t- seven minutes about whatever. Just like just uh, this long sort of like rambling speech. She quotes the Pope at one point. Um <laughs> <laughs> and then she makes mention of, like, my best production is my daughter, Laura Dern, who is at the table right here. And they don't cut because they only have one static camera. Like, that's all they have budget for. <laughs> this is in, like, the back room of a restaurant and, like, not even that fancy of a restaurant. It's amazing that this is on YouTube. And so she points out that Laura Dern is there with her date, Kyle McLaughlin, because they were about to be in Blue Velvet together. Blue Velvet hadn't even come out yet. And she's talking about, like, you know, this her talented, uh, her talented date, Kyle McLaughlin, who was in the movie Dunes. <laughs> Dunes, plural. <laughs> it just made me laugh. I love Diana love so much. Uh, yeah, and I then, love that she. Go ahead, Joe. Well, I was going to say, she also has the big glasses that she has in National Infants <laughs> Christmas Vacation. <laughs> She's yeah the 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 monologuing where she quotes the Pope. She's like talking about how like film independent is like the most important and vital group, not just of the decade, but maybe of the century yeah. because <laughs> of the work that they're doing. It's and so then she says that what she likes the most about the group is its lack of pretentiousness. Yes, hundred <laughs> percent. You like you can absolutely start at the forty minute mark of this thing and just sort of like 
just fast forward until you at least see Peter Coyote. You will miss very little. Peter Peter Coyote's opening monologue is like a 10 minute long monologue about Zen Buddhism. Yes. Which is like <laughs> so <laughs> unwieldy. Also, there's so there's like the Independent it Spirit Award. It is the award, we need of the Spirit Awards today. The Independent Spirit <laughs> Awards statue that we know today was existence from the very beginning where it's like this winged creature atop this column or whatever. And Peter Coyote spends about a minute and a half describing it. But before yeah. <laughs> he does that, there's another award that gets given to like a more i don't know like more like technical or maybe like on a grant basis or something like that to a couple other things that is called the findy that they called the findy the findy awards and so he also describes even though like they're in a room they're just just showing the people (laughs) but like he's describing it as and so the logo of this thing was a piece of shoestring, because a shoestring budget is what independent filmmakers have to work with. A piece of shoestring inside a crystal, whatever, fake crystal, um, pyramid. And he's sort of talking about that. He's just like, that probably has meaning on some like metaphysical level or something like that. He's just really like filibustering in these really fun ways. It's I can't recommend it highly enough. Mitchell, I'm so glad you also watched it. No, I appreciate it. Yeah, you dropped it into into a little DM with, with me and Chris this morning. And I was very glad that I had time to watch it before we recorded this. Because I, I wanted to be just DMing the both of you like the entire time. Like, can you fucking believe this shit? But I, was like, I mean, we'll talk about it later. But it is, yeah, I, I echo Joe. Like everybody uh, should watch this. It is incredible that they let this out into the world. I love. It I'm so looping much. back and watching it. I unfortunately <laughs> did not have time today. You absolutely should. Um. So, oh, Griffin Dunn is nominated for the Golden Globe for Best Actor in a Musical or Comedy. And wait, did I bring that up? I want to bring that one up for a second because he's nominated up against. Jack Nicholson for Pritzi's Honor, who wins. James Garner for Murphy's Romance, which I believe Garner goes on to an Oscar nomination for that as well. Yeah, he indeed he does. Jeff Daniels for The Purple Rose of Cairo. Michael J. Fox for Back to the Future. That's a solid lineup for the Golden Globes. Like, I have to say, like, that lineup is pretty, like, that holds up well today, I will say. That's not bad. To go that with yeah. also Griffin Dunn for After Hours, like, that's pretty good. That's the that's only Globe cool nomination. nomination. Yeah. yeah, it's a cool nomination. I would Especially have loved to be the only one too. That's really interesting. Yeah. However, after hours, the the same is not true for the best uh, motion picture, musical, or comedy category. Uh, for after hours to not show up there, <laughs> it's Preetzi's Honor. Back to Preetzi's Honor wins. Back to the Future. A chorus line. <laughs> Love it. Cocoon sure. and Purple Rose of Cairo. Which, like, I will go to bat. For the chorus line movie being a lot of fun, not particularly good. Cocoon. Uh, uh, sorry that I am anti-fun, but do you not like cocoons? Like, oh, I like Cocoon. I think that's a good movie. I've never seen it. That's one that I need to get around. To. It was on it's TV like a lot when I was younger, so I watched it mm, a bunch. That makes sense. It feels like a movie. That's that would weird be on TV. for kids to be watching that movie. That <laughs> at least forty percent of the plot of that movie is erections. Like that was the, that's the movie where everybody points out that like Wilford Brimley was like only like fifty one. You something have a like boner that. too. Like Don Amici <laughs> wins an Oscar for saying boner seventeen times in, a, in that movie. <laughs> sure does. That's a cast though. It's Wilford Brimley, Hume Cronin. Uh, Gwen Verdon, Jessica Tandy, Maureen Stapleton. 
Gutenberg. Uh, Gutenberg, Brian Dennehy. Gutenberg does look really hot in that movie. (laughs) Brian Dennehy, doesn't Brian Dennehy play, like, the head of the aliens or whatever in, like, human form, I'm pretty sure? Maybe. The aliens look so bad. (laughs) Oh, as aliens, yes. That's why they mostly show them in, like, human form or whatever. Um, Ugh. I love Cocoon. I don't know if I love Cocoon. I really like Cocoon. Um, I'm backing off of that immediately. Um, oh, Carries, it's interesting. if you love Cocoon, do not get in my mentions. So this is the same year as Desperately Seeking Susan. So like quite a year for Rosanna Arquette. Yeah. Both Rosanna Arquette and mm-hmm. Linda Fiorentino were fucking killing it in 1985. That's really good. Good for them. Yeah. And this feels like a nice double feature with Desperately Seeking Susan, where that is also... Oh, like, yeah. that That more openly is a little bit like a little bit supernatural kind of in a way but like like a little bit like um mystical um with like the amnesia of it all and everything but it still is again like that same kind of thing of like yeah and highly implausible but like a little bit possible like just a little bit like in this reality that is sort of left of center and Rosanna Arquette's so good in that what a good movie that is one of the reviews that I read mentioned that in fact that like Rosanna Arquette who's like first lady of Soho at this point like first lady of downtown New York (laughs) um Rosanna Arquette also always makes me think of the Independent Spirit Awards because she was the one who presented Ali Sheedy with that 20-minute long uh, acceptance <laughs> speech for uh, for uh, high art, which I watched the again. The Spirit Awards are so crazy. I was just thinking, I when I was them. watching the ones, uh, the first ones, and like Peter Coyote and Diane Ladd just going on and on, I kept thinking about um, Derek Connolly's uh, screenplay yes. award win for Safety Not Guaranteed, yep. and just like watching that. <laughs> was, yeah. And being mystified. <laughs> but people wouldn't be able to handle how long Ali Sheedy talked when she went for high art. Like, she, like, legitimately is, like, over 20 minutes. It's so incredibly... <laughs> but, like, that's the kind of thing you can do when you're just, like, you're on IFC. You're and hanging IFC out in a tent. doesn't have tent. anything yeah. going on yeah. for the rest of the evening. So, like, they're just going to let you go on. Um, uh, What's interesting about this first uh, Indie Spirit Awards is that it's basically four movies. That's the, the interesting thing show. too. Yeah, they hadn't really figured it out. No, yet. it feels like, like it's like a committee of like twenty people. One of them is yeah. Diane Ladd. So which like, kind of like, talk is getting a lot of nominations? Kind of respect <laughs> well, for the them like movies... growing into whatever they became then because off of that, oh, right? Like, yeah. Right. yeah. I mean, I, mean, I would like, take that over like the the run from like 2012 to 2016, where they were just like they got into that pocket of just predicting the Oscars for like four yep. years. Like the Silver Linings Playbook year yes. was like such bullshit. I've so, soapboxed like, about this before <laughs> yeah, because yeah. you can just pay a hundred dollars yeah. and vote for the yeah. your supporting film well, independent, which is great. But like, <laughs> it, you open up the voting to awards and it's they're yeah, gonna and get you less raise the budget cap to like twenty five million so that something like yes. Silver Linings Play right. can get in. It's like people who well, can go see Silver Linings Playbook when it's which, in like, 2,000 theaters. After hours, any win that it got. But it does even feel, for Scorsese the mid-80s, a weird sure. thing that it's winning Indie Spirit Awards. Not just because it's Scorsese, but it opens with a David Geffen logo. Like, <laughs> right. I will say... It, it feels weird in the way that, like, Megan Ellison gave somebody $25 million sure. and it's somehow independent. Like, right, yeah, you yeah, know. yeah, I'm always going to sp- stick up for the Independent Spirit Awards, probably because they were so formative for me in the early years right. when I was really getting into film. Me and too. I do they're, feel my fa- like, they're still my favorite, like, awards yeah. and kind they of org s- or whatever. And they still, at the, at the very least in the nomination stage, do still throw out awards. Like, when Andrea Riseborough wins Best Actress for To Leslie, we're all gonna, like, fucking <laughs> goop and gag. We're recording this on, like, the that, day that that movie... Is that a small film with a quiet heart? Or what is that? A quiet <laughs> film with a large heart or whatever the fuck everybody's saying? We're recording this on the day that the Andrea Riseborough campaign really, like, crested into the public view, and it has been wild and crazy, kids. There, 
Francis we, Fisher got apart. the Gatling gun out and is just tearing through everybody. <laughs> yes, but we've also reached the hall monitor stage where people I know. are, you know, shaming people. Fun yeah. policing for, people for having, you know, as having some fun at. with this. It's, oh my god, it's so fucking crazy. Like I, I said, this is any different than the majority of awards campaigning. Like, it's just a blast. Like It's just very it's fun. It's just that it's out of nowhere, and by out of nowhere we mean by a matter of nothing <laughs> yes to suddenly it's objectively Somehow. weird and funny and like i love that it's like it's it's like melissa leo in photo negative where it's like instead yeah. of one mm. person considering for herself it's all these other people considering for this the one fact person. that it is very clear copy pasting of the same like tweet of yeah. so many Did different you see like the one where francis fisher actors. is like we're running out of time it's for, in oscar season <laughs> copy pasting time is, is of okay. the essence time is of the <laughs> essence yeah, she's like that's yeah, why well, i posted so what if it's copy pasting with so a gun <laughs> Uh, for our listeners who don't understand what we're oh talking about, uh, the the very, very, very small little independent movie to Leslie starring Andrea Riseborough that is nominated for Best Actress at the Independent Spirit Awards is at the moment in the middle of the Oscar voting window, the recipient of a word of mouth campaign, the likes of which we have never seen before among <laughs> actors and actresses in Hollywood. And it has been glorious to see, full of copy pasted uh, tributes to uh, this wonderful <laughs> performance and... From I, the most random assortment of actors, Dulé Hill, Edward Norton, yes, Mick Farrow. that's the, that's like, the yeah, other thing that makes it wild. funny. It's like it's like Mad Libs. It's like it's the most. <laughs> it's like a Drew Drogi, Chloe lineup. Like kind of, yeah, yes. Joe yeah. Montana. Like it's just <laughs> the weirdest group of people. It really, it's not like really yeah, is. the usual like the Julia Roberts pumping for like who, Javier Bardem, Javier and Bardem. Beautiful or whatever, yes. like yep. stuff like that. Like that makes more sense. A listers like, on A listers, yes. Yeah, totally. this is so fucking random. It makes you want to like burrow into like how does she know this person from this person? What's the connection? Yeah, I'm like, like okay, so I was she, like that Norton was in Birdman with her. Like yes, I'm Norton like, was in Birdman with her for sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. Kate Winslet just filmed the War photographer movie that kate winslet has been attached to for a long time they finally made that movie and francis fisher is kate winslet's titanic mom so like that's where that like fits (laughs) in and like it's like my six degrees brain is really really working over time can i ask you do you guys so i know this is just kind of popping off now but so we'll see like how traction tracks or anything but are you guys considering predicting Andrea Riseborough okay. right now? She's going to be on this my nerd episode... list when I make my big long list of things to check off on Oscar nomination morning. <laughs> I'm not going to leave her off of it because, like... I think I might predict her, honestly. This episode <laughs> drops the day before Oscar nominations come out. Yeah. Oh, Which beautiful. means beautiful. we will somehow have to do <laughs> a, a, a uh, you know, unpacking... <laughs> on our class of 2022 episode, which will air next week, yeah. Um, uh, of if we're going to be doing a two Leslie episode or not, which you know, well, that's what I as said. Joe posited to me, we're not against the idea of our first class of 2022 movie that we do an episode 100%. on being two Leslie. Yeah, if Le- if two Leslie falls just short, is absolutely going to be our very first 2022 movie that we talk about because, like, it's... how disappointing would it be if she didn't get nominated but it got like an editing nom so right. couldn't do an episode on it. <laughs> Right. Right. Well, okay. So to answer your actual question, (laughs) I would say this has truly not come out of the woodwork until the day that nominations went live for Mm -hmm. the Academy. So that to me says, no, it's not. Sure. Yeah. There's a really small window. 
you know, narratives are already set in place and have yeah. been there for like building and building for months. So like, I don't. See this it is going to test thing. the power of whisper networks. We're going to see. <laughs> we're going to see how how powerful the the Hollywood group texts really are, and <laughs> and how long they've been going too. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So that to me says that you know it's it, it doesn't really. The other thing that's so funny about it, and this is like I love, and I've said before, I love Andrea Riseborough. I've loved her in a lot of things. I would have nominated. We're her happy for Andrea Riseborough for the Brandon Cronenberg movie that she did. I thought she was really, really great in that. So Possessor. fucking good, yeah. Um, but it is. It does feel like somebody threw a dart at a dartboard of all the independent movies <laughs> made this year, and just like said yeah. on that one, it's like why this and not Mary Kay Place and Diane a couple of years ago. Why this mm-hmm. and not you know. Um, uh, Alfre Woodard and Clemency. Right. It's oh just like, it God. just feels like yeah. it. And that to me makes it funnier. And it's not me like, I'm not yeah. denigrating Andrea Riseborough. That's I fucking th- love yeah, Andrea Riseborough. Andrea Riseborough has never given a bad performance. She is good in WE. It's, <laughs> like, just, it's just objectively. She's, she's great funny. in um, Oblivion. Like, I think she rules yes. in that. Oh, but yes. yeah. You know who else is, though? Melissa Leo, it's all coming together. It's all coming together. We figured it out. <laughs> we are a cooperative team or whatever she says. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, it so is, it's like it's not like uh, for it to yeah. Andrea Riseborough to seem like somebody who it's never gonna happen for her because like where the hell did this come from? It could happen for anything for her, and we would be happy. <laughs> yeah, but. yeah, it doesn't feel like it's like Jennifer Aniston and Cake or whatever, where like okay, like it makes sense that people right, are like right. stomping this hard for her. Obviously, she has connections that she's built in for like decades. Like the the Riseborough of it all does feel really fucking random. Yeah. yeah. I love yeah. it though. It's so funny it's, to me. It's very fun. It's the most fun thing that's happened. I mean, this has kind of been a fun award season, but it's yeah. it's a very the fun twist tenor on it. Is getting dangerously close to Cat's trailer. <laughs> like it, it, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. I so, spent I spent a good note, like hour today just just scrolling through Frances Fisher's tweets and replies tab <laughs> on her Twitter because she is replying to so many people mad that they are like laughing about it or like questioning it whatsoever. Well, and it it's is, like it's a fun time. I wasn't around in 1987 when Sally Kirkland was self financing her own campaign to get nominated for for the Best Actress award. So like I need like this is fun for me. I like mm-hmm. I let me have this. You know, <laughs> again, by having fun with it or calling it random or absurd doesn't mean that we are against Andrea Riseborough. Exactly. Like, exactly. people can't. I'd be thrilled if she can't have two either. thoughts at yeah. once. Like, it's yeah. fun. Wait, I want to dip back into uh, the the BAFTA nomination that Rosanna Arquette got because I want to. Uh, the other nominees, there were two from A Room with a View. It was Judy Dench and Rosemary Leach, and then Barbara Hershey for Hannah and Her Sisters. I only recently watched A Room with a View. Um, over the summer, it was one of my. I watched like five movies or four movies that I had never seen before on my birthday because I had nothing to do on my birthday. It was really great. That's sweet. Uh, that was when I watched Casablanca for the first time. It was really wonderful. Oh, um, wow. Judy Dench is so much fun in a room with a view. Like a it's a fun movie. movie. Fucking rock. It's a Daniel Day Lewis is really good in that. It's a, Daniel Day Lewis is tremendous and makes me wish <laughs> that he had done like seven more movies where he was that type of a character. That sort of like. Yeah prissy little bitch like i loved it so much it was great um Simon what a wonderful Callow. Movie. fantastic just a fantastic, fantastic. um so i imagine that did quite well at the baftas that year uh maggie smith think. won best actress um yeah. for for room of view um that was heavily in the like the the merchant ivory sweet spot in that era mm. 
Um, what else should we talk about? Like, I want to talk about the reviews a little bit. Um, Ebert went to bat for this movie, which is not surprising. Um, he often is sort of like finger on the pulse of that kind of thing. The quote that I pulled that I thought was really good, uh, he said, this is the work of a master filmmaker who controls his effects so skillfully that I was drained by this film, so emotionally depleted that there was a moment two-thirds of the way through when I wondered if maybe I should leave the theater and gather my thoughts and come back later for the rest of the, quote, comedy. So, like, you can see why, even when the raves are like, this movie... <laughs> stressed me the fuck out where like you can see where like people would be like is that a, did you like that like is that something yeah. that i would enjoy <laughs> um and then the other review that i uh pulled quotes from was vincent canby's at the times who like rotten tomatoes listed as a fresh and like i'm not entirely sure that's why i put asterisks next to the rotten tomatoes <laughs> score of this movie because mm-hmm. it's like first of all you're talking about a movie that's like 40 years old at this point so like mm-hmm. and they'll you know, allow reviews that are written you know 40 now. years after the yeah. movie was right made exactly so like it's not a real score and also the fact that like you're looking at this vincent canby review which is like the definition of mixed and it's like fresh i guess and yet he's saying like it's not ultimately a satisfying film but it's often vigory vigorously unsettling i like how he uses but it's often vigorously said that's the positive part which like (laughs) i kind of like that i kind of like the idea that like vigorously unsettling isn't necessarily bad um in this season of homogenized pap wow shots fired at um i don't know trip to bountiful or something that should should be read as praise his other quote that i pulled was the answers provided by the film aren't equal to the questions after hours is at best an entertaining tease with individually arresting sequences that are well acted by mr dunn and the others but which leave you feeling somewhat conned there is no satisfying resolution to the tension as effectively built up here as it was in the king of comedy raging bull and taxi driver I don't necessarily agree with that, actually. I I don't, but I also don't think that those are useful comparisons. I understand it, and it's like, we wouldn't compare them now because we have had more mm. decades with Scorsese, and Scorsese has made two or three times the amount of movies that he had made at that point. But, like, I mean, maybe you could draw some parallels to Taxi Driver, but it's just like, if you did, then you're immediately struck by two or three more times of things that make these movies completely different. Um, So it's just like, it's a setup for failure to compare to those movies. It's not the same breed. Yeah. It's like, you're going in expect, it's that the whole thing of like what you're expecting versus what it is. And like judging a movie based on what you like wanted or expected it to be Mm -hmm. rather than just like taking it for what it is. It is like the, I, like to double feature it with um the Staffy Brothers Good Time because they both are very like the the all night thing which like I love all night movies but also like that that propulsive energy feels very similar and like Good Time too does have some like threads of comedy it's definitely a, a darker movie but it is like they both feel like that is that that energy and the intentional like unsettling nature of it is extremely effective in both mm-hmm I could understand a certain restlessness, both with audiences and critics, that, you know, this follows King of Comedy, Mm -hmm. and Scorsese is, you know, not so much making these overt 
comedy. I mean, After Hours is a comedy, but not like comedies in the conventional sense, mm. but using comedic tools to do something very different. And it's and... coming like a little bit after, like Raging Bull obviously was massive, like one of the most acclaimed movies ever, but mm-hmm. like New York, New York was before that, which was like a huge yeah. flop. So like they're, right. they're a little bit like and kind of... And for audiences, like New York, New York and King of Comedy were seen as like fuck yous. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, maybe not for all critics, you know, I don't think New York, New York was critically super well accepted but um yeah so like you could understand how the audience would maybe be <laughs> under prepared for what scorsese's doing right for in this movie yeah. but yeah i don't know i want to talk about the ending for a second because um apparently that was the subject of some debate how they should end the movie uh michael powell who had married Telma Schoonmacher around this time that they were making the movie uh, sort of offered his input. Michael Powell, who directed um, Black Narcissus and The Red Shoes and then directed Peeping Tom and they never let him make another movie again. Um, <laughs> um, and the the question was like, should he end up back at work? And would that make sense both thematically or even really i like i like the fact that like the logistics of it are just like well he ends up in the back of cheech and chong's van and just sort of falls out <laughs> falls at, out, at yeah. one point right and like breaks work. out of the plaster <laughs> um but when i realized that because you sort of he's like falls out of the van and you're just like well that was convenient and he breaks out of the plaster and you're sort of looking at it. and then when the second you realize that like it's in front of those gold gates that then are opening first mm-hmm. thing in the morning it's I I gasped out loud in like the most delighted way where I was just like, <laughs> oh my God, he's back at work. And it's the most like the idea that this like corporate drudgery, you know, uh, word processing job where these, you know, droning little computer terminals or whatever greet him is this sh- salvation for him, right? Where he's mm-hmm. just like, thank God, <laughs> thank God I got to go back to where like life makes sense for me again or something like that. I, I, I was kind of delighted by it. Yeah, I think that it's the perfect ending. I was reading on, like, there's some details about some of the other endings. There's one that, like, made it to the storyboard stage where Paul was apparently going to go inside Verna Bloom's womb, and then she was going <laughs> to give birth to him on, like, the side of the highway. Oh, wow. And too that, much. that feels like it would maybe stretch a little bit too that's, far that's into Cronenberg-y, unreality. That's I feel like. Yeah. That's, yeah. yeah. I think, I mean, God bless Michael Powell. I think this is the perfect way to end. Like, it feels like it, because you're watching the movie, too, and you're, like, imagining how he's ever going to get out of this, how, you know, what the destination for the movie is, if mm-hmm. like how he's ever going to get home or if he's just going to die or whatever. And like there, there was another ending where he just stays inside of that uh, plastic repair sculpture that she makes with him in it. And like Cheech and Chong never come and get him. The movie just ends with him in that. And yeah. I feel like him getting like, this feels like the perfect, like full circle kind of ending. And when you see it, it's that thing of like, this is the only way it feels like it could have ended. Well, with the Wizard well, of Oz I, references, I, he's got to end up home at some point. <laughs> it's, like, it's funny to me that home ends up being the office and not like mm-hmm. his apartment. Right. Like that seems mm-hmm. like it's telling in a certain way. Well, like Mitchell, what you were saying, the full circle moment of it, you know, there is a certain type of, you could call it circling the drain, but also a cyclical <laughs> mm-hmm. nature to the movie because it's super episodic, but it's also like, 
it's the perfect ending because it gives this suggestion that he's on this constant cycle in a larger sense too mm. like this isn't just one night maybe this is you know <laughs> what his life is like uh every single he did this day. the night before we just didn't exactly. see that movie yeah <laughs> i also love it it's such a small little scene but like the interior decor of his apartment feels very like mid 80s bland like this very mm-hmm. sort of like that boxy couch that he has where i'm looking at him just like that doesn't oh, look comfortable at all it looks so no wonder you got you were like dying to get out of your apartment and go anywhere else and this like bland upper east side existence that you're living yeah i think that's that's that yeah that's a fun point because it reminds me of like when like i was younger and single and just like home alone and just like you're just kind of sitting there like with yourself and you're like, I don't know. I just want to get out of here and like, go do something and like hoping for something exciting and fun to happen. And then sometimes you very much regret it. And you're like, I wish I had just stayed home and like read a book at home. One thing that I really love too, (laughs) um, is that in for like details for his performance, I love that done like when they were pitching it to Scorsese and like going through the process of like talking him through it, he was very nervous about like, at one point, he wanted to make sure, just, like, double-check with Scorsese, like, hey, you know, like, I'm going to be playing the character, right? Like, he was thinking that Scorsese was, like, maybe thinking that De Niro was going to play, like, Sure, the well, of course, and if, at that point in Scorsese's career, yeah. how could you not imagine that? <laughs> and then, so Don was like, you know, like, uh, you uh, you also know that I'm going to play, like, the lead of this, and Scorsese was just like, oh, yeah, of course, like, I, yeah, I know, I've seen you in, like, like I've seen uh, American Werewolf in London, like, I never thought otherwise, but... Yeah, Bobby, sure, things... Bobby, I'll definitely cast you, Bobby, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One of my favorite things is that Scorsese asked Griffin Dunn to not have sex during the entire, like, shooting of the movie to try wow. and, like, give him that nervy kind of energy for it, and he doesn't know, on the, it's on the, the commentary, and he said he doesn't know if he, like, abided by that or not he probably thinks that he didn't but he hopes that he did That's and i just so love funny. the idea of a director being like hey and also it would be great if you just didn't fuck for like two months please <laughs> do me a favor no fucking no fucking for this entire shoot um i just i'm just imagining scorsese in that sort of like very like amped up way of just like here's here's an idea just throwing it out there don't have sex um i love that uh, wait, I was going to... Oh, Griffin Dunn, I just wanted to throw out there, uh, because we may not have a better excuse to... Uh, director of Practical Magic, among other things. So, like, mm-hmm. uh, uh, just, you know, need to throw that out there. The the uh, If you have visions of Diane Weist and Stalker Channing dancing around a kitchen <laughs> island to lime in the coconut, Griffin Dunn <laughs> is the reason why. So He's got a really fascinating career. I didn't yes. realize... I think I keep real like finding out and then forgetting that he got nominated in like the nineties for an Oscar for like best short film. Um, yeah, he's on that list. And yeah, like I, I haven't seen it. I was looking it up earlier. It's on YouTube in like four different parts. Toby Maguire's in it. Elliot Gould's in it. I'm gonna watch it later. I didn't get the chance to watch it before we recorded, but I, yeah, I just keep forgetting that like he's one of yeah one of those ones like Capaldi or like Walton Goggins who has like either an Oscar or at least a nomination for like a short film kind of award. Um, did you either one? Either mm-hmm. one of you realized that he was in 47 episodes of This Is Us? Because I did not know that until just now as I'm <laughs> looking at his IMDb. Whose grandfather was he? I don't know. Um, that's Whose kind publisher of was he? <laughs> he did do that show that I didn't watch more than one episode of with Catherine Hahn called I Love Dick. Uh, where he played I only watched one episode of that show too I watched the one preview episode oh that's right when I got it in my email that's (laughs) when Amazon would preview their pilots that's Mm -hmm. right I forgot about that um 
Uh, one one episode, like no shade. I love Catherine Hahn. No shade to that, but uh, one episode. I hear it's good. Show was enough. Yeah, I heard some people liked it. I was like, mm, fun not. title. Um, probably not for me. But like, he's one of those actors who like just shows up on TV shows probably more often than anything else now. When you see him in yeah. things, um, I'm looking at his uh, filmography now. Three episodes of Damages seems like exactly right. Like, yes, <laughs> a judge on The Good Wife. Yes. Hundred <laughs> percent, like that. Absolutely feels very much in that pocket. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, it's not a bad pocket to be in. It's you know no. regularly employed and and good to go. Wait, have either one of you ever seen this in a theater, like on a big screen? No, no. So this is um, my partner won't listen to this, so it's fine. But <laughs> I, <laughs> their birthday, I, I think it might have been their first birthday after we started dating. Um, this theater in Bryn Mawr, Pennsylvania was playing After Hours on 35mm and I wanted to go see it so fucking bad because it was already, you know, my favorite movie. Like, it's been my favorite movie for like 10-15 years and they had never seen it before and I knew that they would not want to go do that for their birthday. (laughs) Hey, do you want to go to the middle of Pennsylvania? (laughs) I'm not going to murder you. Do you want to go to the middle of Pennsylvania to see this movie on 35mm? It's my favorite movie of all time, but for your birthday, do you want to go? Does it sweeten the deal if I tell you that Roger Ebert thought about leaving the theater in the middle of watching it because it was so stressful? Maybe that helps. And so we didn't do it. I did... I did casually bring up at one point that my favorite, like a week ahead of time, that my favorite movie was playing on 35 millimeter at, you know, the movie theater in Bryn Mawr, yeah. just to kind of see, with like, uh, I kind of like buried it with like, a, I know you wouldn't want to do this, uh-huh. but, <laughs> and uh, they didn't take the bait, uh, we didn't do it, but that was my, that was my uh, opportunity, because I live in uh, like rural Delaware, so like, there's not like, yeah. Bryn, that theater in Bryn Mawr is like an hour away from me. Like Philly and Baltimore are like an hour, hour and a half away from me. So there's not a lot of like rep screenings for things that yeah. like I have options to go to, especially not like in the pandemic. I like don't really go out. Um, but it's that was the closest I've been. And we did see we did go see Mean Streets on 35 millimeter like two yeah. weeks before that, which th- that was great. Um, but that's the closest I've been. I hope that one day I will get the chance to. One what of these you, times, Mitchell, we're going to converge on New York City in between uh, variant surges, and we will uh, <laughs> we'll 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 see it on uh, on on the big screen. We'll no, I yeah. <laughs> my my uh, local theater did a Scorsese. Uh, revival but only about like half of them were on film and i saw Mm -hmm. both cape fear and alice doesn't live here anymore the alice doesn't live here anymore print was surprisingly in good shape yeah uh considering the age of that movie and like no one no one's like talking about or taking care of that movie to the degree that it deserves um the cape fear one that was intense because (laughs) watching that movie in 35 that is a pervy ass yep. movie. Yep. That is like that movie is uh, like there's nothing. Uh, I mean, there is like some stuff in it, but like you're just watching it, and it, it feels in that way that some Hitchcock movies, when you watch them, you're like, I am watching something obscene. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I am watching something. I am watching a, a, a soulfully dirty movie. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Or a movie that's dirty to its soul. The scene um, in the um and the like the high school theater with Julia, the thumb sucking. Yeah, like God. that feels like every time I watch that, it feels like it's something so that I'm not supposed to be watching. Yep. I'm like. 
like it I was also down to this. just like those like red flashes seeing mm-hmm. that in a theater and on film it just it made me feel gross <laughs> in such a good way I so remember sweaty. that movie came out yeah. when I was like a teenager I was like 11 12 right and that was one of those movies that people talked about about like there's this movie and she goes and then she sucks his thumb and it's like oh it's like all nasty and whatever and i remember watching it on television so it's edited for television so you like you see certain things like they edit out the part where he bites off Ileana douglas's cheek but you see like up to the moment when it happens mm-hmm. and like that kind of thing yeah but like the thumb sucking scene is like not like there's nothing that like violates uh you know <laughs> standards and practices so that scene plays in full and it's just like oh i'm so like unsettled and i'm like yeah. 13 watching this and i'm just like oh god just families Easier. watching it on tbs at one in the afternoon together <laughs> and then juliette lewis is as- nominated for an oscar and shows up in cornrows to the ceremony so like <laughs> genuinely with brad pitt Yes, I want. Yeah, or yeah, that was no. like yes. That maybe it was a little bit before because I was like right. It was like a year dating. It was two years before California. California came out. Yeah, yes. so probably yeah. Our, the Oscars were probably around the same time it was filming. So R.I.P. to the what was the name of the Tumblr Joe for photos of celebrities? Oh, Lena Dunham would talk about it all the time. Um, um, something loves. Um, forgotten loves or something, something like, like famous that. people that you forgot or never knew dated but photos of them together it was she did go to that oscars with brad pitt yep there's oscar there's yep. red carpet photos of the two of them yeah wow <sighs> Good um, look for everybody. It's a lot of look on her because it's also this like <laughs> this like beautiful sort of like elegant white gown with this like long uh, beaded uh, necklace that she's wearing. It's it's a lot of look and opera glass. That was like pretty soon after she got emancipated too, right? So she was just like, I'm she's well, very free doing whatever she she's wants. She's also to do. somebody who played in the vague range of thirteen to eighteen for like a decade. Where, mm-hmm, like, she mm-hmm. was in Christmas Vacation, she's in Cape Fear, she seems like she's playing younger in Cape Fear than she was in Christmas Vacation, even though Cape Fear comes out later. One million percent. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, 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 what's it called? Um, Natural Born Killers comes out, but yet she's still playing sort of, like, teen roles and other things. It's just, like, it was, her age was indeterminate for a good uh, ten years there. Wouldn't trade that Oscar nomination for anything. Oh yeah, maybe no, I would I mean, trade that's... it for her being nominated for Natural Born Killers. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, yeah. it's totally. a, it's a, yeah, it's a fantastic nomination. That performance would not get nominated today. <laughs> no, I don't think it would. Uh, I want to talk about. I mean, maybe if it's still a Scorsese movie, I don't know. Thoughts on Howard Shore's score for this movie, which could not be more mid nineteen eighties, with its like labyrinthy chimes. Like I kept thinking of like Paper House <laughs> and stuff like that, like those sort of quasi fantasy movies of the mid eighties. It was like yeah. you walked through a room full of like wind chimes and pots and pans that are hanging from the ceiling or whatever. It was great. Yeah. Griffin Griffin Dunn described it as um like uh, the score being his approach to the score being sound effects with a melody to it. And yeah, I feel like that's like a really wonderful mm-hmm. way of capturing it because it doesn't feel like it feels in a way like the movie where it's like feels improvisational and like right. the beauty of it feeling improvisational is like obviously so much time and attention went to it to make it feel improvisational because if it was just like him riffing right. it would sound like garbage but like yeah. it's yeah it feels very like spontaneous and of the moment and like really the scenes of him just like running through the streets in like panic mode yep. with the score going it like really just feels that vibe so yeah. effectively and yet like there's also mozart sound cues in this there's bach mm-hmm. there's uh like i said the peggy lee song at the end there's that uh 
Terry Garr puts on the last train to Clarksville, which uh, <laughs> made me think of that moment in Women Talking, where all of a sudden the van comes driving through and it's playing the monkeys, uh, mm-hmm. Daydream Believer, it, uh, which I'm still mad that they put that in the trailer because that was such a oh did they i yes. don't watch trailers that, that yeah that like blew my mind it was I a surprise it to me like i guess i shouldn't have been yeah. so surprised that it was in modern times and that but like i thought that's a little bit of a surprise in that movie that like the trailer just sort listen of sarah polly has good taste in music she does oh i watched um take this waltz man i watched the, yeah, the, the end of, the needle of take drop. this waltz recently and it's like yeah. i gotta see that whole movie again at some time that's soon, such a fucking good movie tremendous the, how do we get the reappraisal for that going thank you exactly we thank can, you we gotta do maybe <laughs> uh, mitchell come back on we'll talk about take this waltz we'll do um, fuck yeah. amazing right. i will talk um, about how much i cry every time i watch yes take this waltz. <laughs> yes <laughs> perfect movie uh the craft person i would want to talk about with this movie uh is michael ballhouse Michael Ballhouse. Yeah. yes i mean <laughs> Uh, th- well, this is his, I believe, his first at least big English language movie. Yeah, he um, did like Baby It's You with Dunn and Robinson like before this, but this was definitely like his first like big, big right. one. Yeah, because he was doing Fastbender movies and mm-hmm. uh, shockingly only had got nominated for Oscar three times. He's one of those cinematographers uh, that is not nominated as many times as he should be. Yeah, mm-hmm. as should be, or you would even think of, and like. He had a partnership with Scorsese for a number of movies, and this is the first mm-hmm. one of them, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's I, One of the reviews that I was looking at uh, described the camera work in this movie as often seeming like a dog that is straining against his leech. Maybe that was uh, uh, Ebert, where it's just like all of a sudden it like zips around and yeah. like is like <laughs> look, trying to like see everything in the scene at once. And um, uh, the the taxi scene makes me think of that too. The way that the absolutely like nerve jangling way they film that taxi just sort of like zipping across, like going from lane to lane. Like no wonder that twenty that poor twenty dollar bill never to be seen again. <laughs> yeah, and they like I mean they did like these crazy techniques with like the the shot where he first shows up to the apartment and Linda Fiorentino drops the keys down they like rigged something to the keys to like film it going down and it like almost like killed Griffin Dunn and he didn't even realize it so then they had to do it again but they were like we can't do that the same way again and Griffin Dunn was like no that was great let's do it again and everybody else was like you will die if we try to do it again like it broke the camera (laughs) and like I just love I love too like the um the lighting and like the way that like spotlights and flashlights are like used throughout the movie like you're in like one of the apartments he's like hiding out in the apartment and like you see the light like blaring in through from like one of the flashlights of like the mob and you just feel that panic setting in of like the light like it can hit you any second and like the people will see you any second like yeah yeah everything that review really captured it well just like it feels like constantly in motion in such an exciting way like a michael ballhouse image like has a very distinct you know uh temperature and texture of light in a way that like you know uh, probably almost a precursor to deacons in a way Mm -hmm. of just like so it it could be the simplest image but it's so distinctly his too it's surprising the three movies he was nominated for because like you would tell somebody he's nominated for three and i don't know if any of these three are the first was he nominated for gangs of new york Yes. yes. Okay. <laughs> Gangs of New now. York, his only Scorsese nomination. Um, yeah, it's not. It's not uh, it's, it's Age of Innocence or Last Temptation of Christ. Right. It's Gangs of New York, yeah. which 
Yeah. Whatever. Um, Fabulous Baker Boys and Broadcast News. Broadcast News, that's a cool-ass nomination. That's a really cool nomination. Yeah, it's not the kind of movie that you would expect to get a cinematography nomination, but it very much deserves it. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I love, and Scorsese credits a lot of, like, the success of the movie with Michael Ballhouse because a lot of the mm-hmm. him doing the movie was him wanting to after like the last temptation of Christ of it all like wanting to do something smaller like dirtier quicker and like test himself to see if he could make a movie like this again on like a smaller yeah. budget a smaller schedule like they shot for like 40 days compared to like 150 for Raging Bull and when like they were talking to the the producers in the studio about it and they were like do you think that you can get all of this done in 40 days with this amount of time Scorsese was like I mean ask Michael like he has like my shot list like every shot that I want to get done and mm. they did like more like setups and shots per night than Scorsese ever done on any other movie. They did like 16 like setups a day. Like it was like wow. crazy, like them just trying to push to make it get done. So yeah, I think Ballhouse definitely deserves a huge shout out for making this movie what it is. You mentioned the dropping the keys scene and but it happens twice in the movie and both of the times mm-hmm. uh, Griffin Dunn backs away from it and allows mm-hmm. it to hit the ground. And I kept thinking it was going to like fall down a sewer grate or something like that because it was like, <laughs> yeah. just catch the goddamn keys, man. Just like... Uh, yeah, I think Scorsese described it as like the the keys representing this thing of like him sort of accepting going into this underworld, and it's like the mm. keys are coming down at him so fast that like, he's afraid and he doesn't want to do it, so he backs away and then he picks him up, and that's like him like accepting the entrance into you know this hell that he's about to go into. Well, and there's such a huge key motif anyway, right? Where like he gives mm-hmm. John Hurd his keys, John Hurd gives him his keys. You kept seeing <laughs> the little dangly skull thing off of John mm. Hurd's keychain. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah totally keys and doors yeah. i feel like that feels like pretty intentional um yeah at some point okay here's my i imagine at some point somebody somewhere like i feel like alamo draft house needs to have small replica plaster of paris bagel and cream cheese paperweights <laughs> because i would buy several was, of them i, I was thinking what, like at the, as we were getting into like this episode i was thinking like if anybody who knows me well wants to give me like the perfect like birthday gift Abs- it would be like a plaster of paris yes. like, bagel and cream cheese paperweight <laughs> they say it so many times and it's one of those so things where they, as soon as they said it enough times i was like oh this is like a thing like this is one of those yeah. like shibboleths or whatever that like people say to each other <laughs> to like know that you're in on the the after hours and i love thing. i love the time where he like almost gets it too it's when terry gar goes to give him one as he's like leaving her place and he fucking swats yes. it out of her hand yes. <laughs> as because it now it represents this horrible ordeal that he's going through yeah oh um wait i'm going into my notes and i'm trying to read this thing but i don't have enough light um what did i write here my handwriting is so bad i'm so um I have absolutely no idea what I wrote down here, but I feel like it was something I wanted to write. God damn it. Um, nope. Not going to get it. That's a bummer. Now I, this feels very, I don't know. Kafka's having fun with me now too, I guess. Um, oh yeah. <laughs> right. When he's telling the story to the gay guy who uh, thinks he's picking him up on the street, right? He's mm-hmm. like that great scene where like, they sort of, uh, he's telling the story and they keep like cutting, like fade cutting too. Cause the story's so long. It has to go, mm-hmm. uh, but he's, t- he's telling the part about where he tried to get on the subway, but the fares went up and he goes, did you know the fares went up? And the guy just goes like, yes. Like, it's just like, <laughs> it's like everybody knows that the fares yeah. went up. The seed too, with him trying to get on with the fares going up is one of my favorite things because he's like, he's asking the, the funniest the guy, line in the movie. He, isn't yeah. Scene? He's like, 
what like what's gonna just let me go through like i have almost enough just let me go through like who's gonna know and the guy says i don't know maybe i'll get drunk at a party one day and tell somebody and, tell somebody. <laughs> <laughs> and he says it with such a straight like he believes it on. he fully believes that might happen one day it's great or he's just fucking oh, with them. Like, that's the other thing. Yeah. Every single interaction that Griffin Dunn has in this movie is plausibly, like, on the level or plausibly people mm-hmm. are fucking with him. And and either one would make equal amount of sense, which I love. <laughs> what a fun movie. I'm so glad we did this. Genuinely. I'm, I love I'm when, so I love when a plan comes together like this. This <laughs> is really great. Do we want to talk about the can that it played? Oh, We're also yeah. talking about an era of yeah, can this is where... an interesting. Yeah, it's an interesting one because it played the year after it came out. And I feel yeah. like that is always really fascinating. And yeah, I think you... their technical rule is you can play in the country of origin, but nowhere else, because like that still happens regularly for Almodovar films. Mm, um, mm-hmm. But you used to see it way more in, you know, previous decades. Yeah, almost a um, full year after, like, because it came out in September. And yeah, then it's like, yeah, nine months later yeah. or whatever. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. So this can, uh, in competition, you also have Jim Jarmusch's Down by Law. You have a brief Bruce Beresford film, which, like, People, because of Driving Miss Daisy, uh, basically <laughs> think that uh, Bruce Beresford is all schlock. And even if uh, you still think it's all schlock, he actually played Can competition, I think, multiple times. Um, Fool for Love by Robert Altman. There's a Nagisa Oshima film. Uh, Mona Lisa by Neil Jordan. Mm-hmm. Love that movie. Mm-hmm. Runaway Train, which I always feel like is a strange... I should watch that movie because it sounds... Uh, anytime that I see those Oscar nominations and I see Runaway Train, Eric Roberts I always think nomination. of I think of Money Train with <laughs> Wesley Snipes and Woody Harrelson, and I was like, it's got to be that kind of movie, right? Like, it's it a, it's a crazy like movie. It's it's intense. That I will not uh, abide by the acting nominations for it. I think the acting and it's kind of atrocious, but it's a really fascinating kind of movie that it picked up, like the nominations that it did. Um. Yeah. Uh, I, I'll, I'll catch up to it. Uh, Tarkovsky's The Sacrifice is there, but the palm winner is Roland Joffe's The Mission. Yeah. Have either of you seen The Mission? I have multiple. Actually, so I saw it when I was in school. In high school, I want to say they showed it to us in class for something. Or maybe when I was in college. very much on a rolling cart. <laughs> it's a rolling cart movie, but I also was on Dan Mecca and Conor O'Donnell's uh, podcast, oh, The B-Side, yeah, yeah, yeah. talking about Oscar... Oscar movies that uh, that were sort of B-side Oscar movies, and that was one of them. So we watched The Mission again. It's an interesting movie. It's sort of gotten a reputation for being this sort of like fusty musty like. Um, I I would I have certainly added to it. <laughs> I think it's kind of in, I think it's a more interesting movie than maybe its reputation uh, exists with a tremendous score too. Is the other thing there? Like, there's some beautiful images to it. However, yeah. I think Roland Joffe is in. Uh, possession of tarkovsky's um, <laughs> sure uh i, I set a whole ass house on fire for that movie <laughs> good for tarkovsky very good um have, i haven't seen the mission but have you guys seen the the oshima movie that maximona moore have you guys seen that movie no not that one but every oshima movie i have seen i am like fuck Yes. Yeah, the Maximum Amore is a movie where straight up Charlotte Rampling falls in love with and has a sexual relationship with a monkey. And it's an actual <laughs> monkey. And the movie just plays out, plays out extremely straight. I, it is. I watched it on movie on like a whim, like 
two or three years ago because I like Oshiba and like I saw the plot. I was like, all right. And it's, it's honestly pretty good. And it's, yeah, well worth watching. It's like 90 minutes long. It is worth watching for the premise alone. It's fascinating. Amazing. <laughs> um, Joe, this will make you happy, as happy as it makes me. Uh, one of our beloved treasures played out of competition at that can, the Chipmunk Adventure. Uh, hey! <laughs> The boys and girls of rock and roll were doing it on the Quasad. I love it. Listen, give us a sequel where it's about the boys and the girls of rock and roll tricking Mrs. Miller through a various, you know, uh, talk boy type of situation. That's true. Where they go to the Cannes Film Festival. God, I love that movie. I got to watch it again. Also, Jane Campion had like multiple movies at this uh can in in certain regard and then won the short film palm at that like jane campion was like ballin at that uh at that can good for good for her busy woman what a time sometimes i feel like i don't always feel like oh i would have been like so good during the like golden age of cinema or whatever like wish i had been like around during like the 70s or whatever i do sometimes wish that i was like a a more aware film in the 80s though because it's like there's Mm -hmm. a lot of picking through a lot of mainstream dreck and whatever, or like, or, or detritus to get to some really interesting early stage stuff for some people's careers. And like, I think that, I mean, this is really true of even the Oscars too, because we're talking about the out of Africa year and I will never watch that movie again. I don't need Not a good. nap. That Speaking bad. of Sidney Pollack, who, who was president of that can jury mm-hmm. in 86. Yeah. 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 And a good director who made a movie that I do not care for. That I've still yeah. never seen Out of Africa. I've, I've it. Oh, yeah. Not, I mean, yeah. Chris is right. It's like, not it a is good movie, but it is also snore. the snooze of snooze. This is the yeah. thing. This is, but I will say, the English Patient also has that reputation. And when I finally watched I love, the English I love Patient, not the same. Not the same. I love the English Patient. I trust you guys. I trust you. Not the same. But yeah, I agree. Like when I was like growing up like a teenager discovering my love of like film or whatever like i very much fell into that like stereotype of like the 70s especially for like american cinema the 70s are like where it was at the yeah. 80s was like garbage like yeah. it's just like fluff whatever and i i you know stuck with that for a really long time and within the last like 10 years i've kind of realized that like the mid 80s especially is really like my pocket of like probably my favorite like yeah. era of american mm-hmm. cinema but it's like once you get past like the stuff that was really up at the Oscars or whatever. Yeah. It's just, there's so much good stuff down there. Well, it's again, you talk about that very first independent spirit awards and like Scorsese was already Mm -hmm. a thing, but like you talk, like it's that cross section of Scorsese and the Coens where Mm. Scorsese is making his like sort of like career dip, uh, independent movie. And then the Coens are just ascending with blood simple mm-hmm. that same year mm-hmm. and like what an exciting time to be alive like genuinely <laughs> well the other fourth movie that kind of dominated because we also mentioned trip to the bountiful is joyce chopra's smooth talk yes. which, which is a masterpiece fucking i've rules. never yeah. even like, i had never heard of it before i looked this up i have to Joe, admit. you will love that movie like yeah. don't even read anything about it like it's a movie that like it is on its own rhythm but like you will love that movie yeah i hadn't heard anything about it and i watched it um the 2020 new york film festival so it was Uh like they were it was like virtual and like i was completely alone because it was like before vaccines so Uh, like i was not leaving my house at all yeah like i wasn't even seeing the restoration yeah i wasn't even seeing my partner or anything so i was basically just like consuming everything that i could like around that period of time so like i was like oh laura dern they did a restoration at new york film festival of this movie that i've literally never heard of just watched it yeah on a whim and it completely blew my mind and yeah the criterion's the restoration's 
gorgeous. It is a movie that will knock your socks off. It's just insane that it's a movie that probably many people for 30 years thought I've never heard that mo- of that movie before. <laughs> yeah. Because it's just, like, great. Yeah, it's undeniable. <laughs> the poster that I'm looking at, which is on the, the Wikipedia page, has that, like... Um, young adult novel from the 1980s look to it mm-hmm. like a um, not Judy Bloom, but like something that like a 15 year old uh, would like get at the book fair or whatever and like it's a yes, little it's a yes. little racy and yeah um, it's very exciting treat Williams uh, not quite sweet Valley high right, but not like quite a little the, yeah yeah treat Williams in this yeah, also Joey, I know this is like several years after the Ritz, but I'm still like buzzing off of seeing the Ritz for the first time last year. And like, <laughs> which I need to treat Williams to. in that movie is like treated as such a like object at times, but like in a really, really interesting way. Speaking of F. Murray Abraham, fantastic F. Murray Abraham uh, performance in that movie. I'm going to bring that movie up as often as possible. That out. Yeah, I got to see that. Oh, uh, Mitchell, I think you would really like it. It's, I'm going um, to watch it. Uh, I, I can't wait to watch the Ritz. Thank you for <laughs> reminding me about it. Uh, all right. Anything else you want to talk about before we move into the IMDb game? I just quickly wanted to mention with um, Joseph Minion's script, like yeah. the thing that I always find interesting is that so the when he wrote it for his thesis for Columbia, the first um, his script was basically started the first like thirty minutes of it of the film were based on this NPR playhouse monologue by Joe Frank, which was called Lies. And the script is almost, like, identical to the monologue. Like, he basically ripped it off, and he got an A on his thing. But when the movie came out, Joe Frank, who did the monologue, sued the studio and won and like wow. got like a, what's apparently is a pretty handsome settlement. So I that find guy. that very interesting. Like I love, I mean, the script's amazing. Joseph Minion has a fascinating career. He wrote like four movies and they're all fucking bonkers. He also wrote Vampire's Kiss and Nicolas Cage movie. And this really, really weird movie called Motorama from like the early nineties, which Dan Mecca, who you mentioned before, uh, recommended for me to watch. Uh-huh. Um, and it is basically like, it's almost after hours if it was if the main character was a 10-year-old kid who everybody else treated <laughs> as if he was a full-grown adult and like you it's it's a fucking bizarre movie um but yeah he has a really weird career and i just love that like watching the the spirit awards um ceremony earlier today and like people just praising and praising praising this script and like in the back of my head being like that was kind of plagiarized <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. All right. Uh, Chris, why don't you explain to the listeners what the IMDb game is? And we can move on to that. Hey, listeners, every week we end our episodes with the IMDb game where we challenge each other with an actor or actress to try to guess the top four titles that IMDb says they are most known for. If any of those titles are television, voice-only performances, or non-acting credits, we'll mention that up front. After two wrong guesses, we get the remaining titles release years as a clue. If that's not enough, it just becomes a free-for-all of hints. Indeed, that is the IMDb game. All right, Mitchell, as our guest, it will be your choice whether you want to go first, uh, give first rather, or guess first, and in what direction you want this little round robin to go in. I, I'll, uh, I'll guess first. All right. Um, and I'll say, let's have you give to me, and I'll give uh, to Chris. All right, sounds good. Okay, so I mentioned before that Griffin Dunn 
directed uh, Practical Magic, of course. He also directed a movie that I don't remember whether I've seen or not, a rom-com from the mid-90s called Addicted to Love. Have either one of you seen Addicted to Love? I have not seen it. Meg Ryan. I've possibly seen it, but remember nothing. Meg Ryan, (laughs) Matthew Broderick, Kelly Preston. um, I'm not sure exactly what the premise is. I know that Matthew Broderick... I think they're... Their um their partners are having an affair with each That's other. That's what it and is. They maybe bust them I think, or make them jealous. They something. start like spying on them and like they like yeah. they like fall for each other. Matthew Broderick is sporting a Bradley Cooper style like perma three day scruff going on in that movie that is uh, I found surprisingly appealing. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, one of the supporting players in that, uh, playing the character of Nana, uh, is Maureen Stapleton. So, Mitchell, oh, Jesus Christ. hit me with Maureen Stapleton's known for. We love Maureen. Um, yeah, that's going to be a struggle for me. Um, I, I guess Reds? Yes, Reds. Okay. Um, <laughs> I might tap out after Reds, Okay. Um, ish... She's not in interiors. She is in she interiors. Is? You've got two of them. See, okay. already doing better than you thought. She's incredible in interiors. I was, yeah, I was pretty sure, but I wasn't because I know stacked cast in interiors, and I just wanted to make. We sure. just did best picture follow ups for uh, screen drafts, and so I watched interiors in preparation for that. And she is uh, quite good in that movie. Yeah, that's a stacked performances in that movie. Yeah. Um. I yeah, I really don't know any direction to go after. All right, I can start giving uh, you one movie we also discussed that was a Golden Globe nominee. We discussed today. Yes, yes. Uh, from the same year as After Hours, an Oscar winner. An Oscar winner. Chris didn't like it. I did. Um, a comedy. With a pretty, uh, I said it had a pretty stacked cast. She plays the wife of, if I tell you the person, you're going to get it. Um, <laughs> Perhaps a sexual comedy. I don't, you're the only person I know who would name, who would describe this movie as a sex comedy, Chris, but that's. Um, it's basically a sex comedy. It's not, it's a. It is a sci fi sex comedy. It is a sci fi sex comedy. Sort of. Back to the Future? No. no, no. Um, her husband is Wilford Brimley. Oh, cocoon. Okay. Yeah, cocoon. Okay. <laughs> um, the final remaining one is from 1970. It is okay. a um, best picture nominee. Oh God, it is a best picture, and it won supporting actress, best right? Picture nominee, <laughs> and it won supporting actress, right? Am I right about that, Chris? I think so. Yeah, 70. Um, for for like someone wild like um Helen Hayes, I think it, it is. is Helen Hayes won the Oscar for this. The cast is one of those like. 12 famous it's people Helen Hayes Oscars for this movie it's like it's from this era of like disaster movies it's not, is it airport it is airport in fact okay yeah, it's cool. airport <laughs> um the poster for airport is literally just like like the Brady Bunch Faces. cast where it's just like <laughs> yeah. Burt Lancaster Dean Martin Gene Seberg Jacqueline Bissett George Kennedy Helen I Hayes I have to double check if Helen Hayes has another Oscar because if it's only for airport that I sucks. think it is okay, her good, only Oscar good. double check it no she she won uh, best leading actress in 1931 oh, okay. uh, for uh, the sin of Madeline Cladet alright wow. alright um, 
All right, disaster you got it. Such a weird era. I did. I okay. You that did was better. Not as not as embarrassing as I thought. Yeah, you did better <laughs> than uh, than expected. All right, so you will now give to Chris. Okay, so I I will say I love the show and <laughs> I love the IMDb game, and so I have imagined who I would you know play for this before, and oh, so shit. this is a lot of pressure for Ooh. me because it's like. You know, oh, like if this is the only chance I get, I want to, you know, pick a good one. And <laughs> no, I, no, 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 we want you to come back. We want you. That's to come good back. to know because I was, I was narrowed, I narrowed it down to two, and I was like really struggling with like which one of the two I was going to pick. But because this person has been very much like in headlines and conversation from the Golden Globes, um, and a new oh. Thelma and Louise musical that she has been talking about now doing, um, I will say Amanda Seyfried. Okay, Amanda Seyfried. Um, She's so interesting because do I think her I do think her Oscar nomination is there, Mank. It is not. Okay, never mind. Uh, <laughs> Mamma Mia. It is not. Whoa. Not Mamma Mia. <laughs> not oh. Mamma Mia. Oh. <laughs> wow. Amazing. This is why you wanted me to do a man of I okay. thought it was fascinating when I saw which four that This is a there. wild this is a wild known for. Wow. <laughs> okay, what are my years? All right, so the years are 2012, 2010, 2004, and another 2010. One of the 2010s is Dear John. Yes. We were just talking uh, about this in our text thread, Mitchell, we like were. literally earlier. <laughs> well, because what's, the, what's the, the tidbit about it, Chris? Because everybody knows that Lost in Space is the movie that finally dethroned Titanic mm-hmm. from the top of the box office. Was Dear John I, Avatar? Joe and Katie. Yes, Dear John is the movie that dethroned Avatar. Mm. Um, okay, so another 2010, a 2012, and what was my other year? 2004. 2004. Oh, 2004, that's interesting. Because that's pre-Mamma Mia, mm-hmm. which is 08 or 09. Mm-hmm. Oh, wait. Yeah, Mamma Mia's 08. Um, I know it's sitting right there. I just don't have it. It'll be obvious uh, is, when you like when you yeah. figure out what it is. It'll be really obvious. Okay, twenty twelve is um Les Mis. Yeah, sure is. Uh, Which I always forget she's in. I too. It's, she's the most. She's the only good performance in the. But movie. she's she the one. In it, yeah. She's the one you forget though. Is the other thing. Yeah, because like she really is. Um, two thousand four. Too early to be Jennifer's body. Mm-hmm. Okay, so what's going on in 2004? Um, <laughs> that's like... Sideways. John Kerry was being swift-boated. Um, <laughs> let's see. Uh, the Yankees blew the division series to the Red Sox. Um, Alias was in its tumultuous fourth season. Um, Terry Shiva. Terry Sh- um, you can only remember Terry Schiavo because it's the same year as Million Dollar Baby. We don't talk enough about how the Terry Schiavo of it all uh, led to the Million Dollar Baby narrative. Anyway, um, Baby Gary's don't Google Terry Schiavo. <laughs> don't. Um, Please don't. God. Please don't. Um, you will not be happy that I made that joke. It is a weird coincidence, though. Um... 2015 maybe 2015 will be easier for me to get i no it's another it's 2004 and then another 2010 oh another 2010 okay Mm -hmm. so it's the same year as dear john it would be before she's doing or after mamma mia Mm -hmm. 
it's pitched to the is same Chloe? audience. As it's not Dear Chloe. John. Chloe was oh nine. Yeah, it's okay. same, same audience as Dear John. It's another like romantic kind of thing. A movie that I oh, completely forgot she... existed until I saw her. On yeah, uh, me too. Is it one of the ensemble romantic no. things? No. Okay, so it's not a. Is she's she's very much the lead. In she it. is the face. She on is the, the poster. title character. Yes, right? okay. I imagine. Right. How many times? No, she's she's actually she not. Played? She's actually not. Oh, so that's there interesting. There's a woman's name in the title. <laughs> oh shit! What is this? That's gonna drive me crazy. Clearly, um, Joe and I have not seen this movie. <laughs> I don't think this hint will help you, but the director of this movie directed a movie that we did for this podcast in its early days. Oh, okay. So that's like Mike Newell. That is how early did we do this movie? Um, Susanna Beer. Is... This was our twenty-first episode. Okay. I don't know if that's going to help me. Woman's name, Amanda Seyfried. Okay. It's one of those movies where um, a young woman goes to a, mm. goes on vacation somewhere and like learns about herself <laughs> and her romantic, you know. I, I want to be like, she's not flourish. Aquamarine in Aquamarine. She's not Aquamarine. <laughs> <laughs> Oh no 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 no! This is letters to Juliet. Sure yes, letters to Juliet. Letters to Juliet. We um, all remember. Directed by uh, Gary Winnick, who directed uh, Tadpole. Oh. Yeah. Rest in peace, Gary yes, Winnick. The late Gary um, Winnick. Okay, so two thousand four, pre Mamma Mia. She's supporting in it. Yeah, I feel like she's someone's daughter in that era chris you're maybe not getting this because drag race has moved to N- or mtv now oh it's mean girls there you mean go girls. i'm yeah. sorry gary's i know you're all yelling at me about there you that. go uh i knew you'd get it if i gave you that particular <laughs> hint <Yeah. laughs> crazy top four for crazy top who is, four. who's the lead in mamma mia and has an oscar nomination like and in Ma- the, the other thing mamma about mia. that is <laughs> yeah it makes me wonder where she's billed in the mamma mias because if she's mm. billed much lower than yeah. you would expect it i would explain why it yes is yes there. yeah wild and then netflix movies have a hard time of showing up even if they get oscar nominations Mm. all right joe for you someone that we shockingly have never done on the imdb game uh griffin dunn lost his golden globe nomination for after hours to this actor i'm talking about none other than jack nicholson whoa okay jack is tough because he's got so many big options a lot of options, and he's the lead in almost every movie that he's in. <laughs> and you can't even necessarily go to Oscars because he's got three of them, and a lot of them are older. Although, and a lot of nominations on top of that. And a lot of nominations on top of that. Oh, man. Okay. I will. I'm going to guess, though, that One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is one of them. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, correct. Okay. I'm also going to guess as good as it gets. As good as it gets. Correct. I would not have guessed as good as it gets, to be honest. I feel like that movie was on TV a lot. And I think that those kinds of like TNT movies like really, really show up well on the IMDb game. That's my theory. Okay. Um, Jack. Jack Nicholson. 
No um, wrong answers yet. That's <laughs> or no wrong guesses. Kathy Griffin's joke in her stand-up about the way that Madonna pronounced when Madonna ha- uh, presented the Golden Globe to Jack Nicholson for as good as it gets, and she just opened the envelope and she just goes, "The winner is Jack." So then, okay, so then remember the Golden Globe, she announced Best Actor, and it was Jack Nicholson for As Good As It Gets. And she reads it, and she goes, and the winner for Best Actor is Jack. What's wrong with her? When is somebody going to stop her? (laughs) Um, I'll find that clip. I'll throw it in there. Okay, so other Jack Nicholson. I'm trying to think of, like, what were his big, like, pop. Bular, populist, you know, kind of movies that he was maybe numb. Oh, Chinatown. Chinatown. All right. Ooh, Are you going to get a perfect score oh, on God. Jack Nicholson? This is pressure, 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 pressure. Um, all right. So probably not Pritzi's Honor. I think Terms of Endearment. Well, how high would he be billed in Terms of Endearment? He might be third build or maybe he's the and in terms of endearment um i'm not helping you out on that no but i do think he's the and of that movie I, th- th- he, he would make we sense don't talk enough about how two of jack nicholson's three oscars are for james l brooks movies. i know yeah. i know it's crazy um he wouldn't be god now all i can think of is wolf which is like that's not helping me, <laughs> i <right>? wish <laughs> like it's, it's really it not wild me. that i mean like we could do an episode on wolf but isn't it wild that wolf is not from the era of mike nichols doing drugs right <laughs> right wolf's a good movie i've, I've literally i've been never talking seen about... it it's on it's a, it's eternally on my like i want to watch all the unwatched mike nicholses and that there is movie. some i'm gonna watch now that i finished the book um i'm gonna watch all of them it's only oh Dan okay. Connor watched uh, Wolf recently for they're doing a Michelle Pfeiffer episode of the B side, and I've literally made oh, it. Amazing. We have like a DM with the three of us, and like I we've been talking about Wolf nonstop. For, like, I think I saw you guys tweeting about it the other day. There are so many avenues of what is fascinating <laughs> in that movie. I can't quite fall on the side of it being. I mean, maybe I don't know. It's fascinating enough that I could probably have watched it most recently and been like, this is bad. But because it's so interesting in my mind, I'm like, well, maybe it is really, really good. Right. All right. My guess. It's it's crazy to exist. It is is crazy to exist. (laughs) My guess is going to be The Departed. Holy shit. Did I get it? Yeah. You got a perfect score. Fuck you. I hate you. How did you get that? I was trying to think. I knew it was going to be something more recent. And I was like, what were I was like counting backwards from his like last movies. And and I would not have gotten the departed. Yeah. I do think the bucket list he used to be on is known for. I feel like I remember the bucket list being on there at some point. The bucket list made an insane amount of money as part of the criminal amount of money, someone said. The former this had Oscar (laughs) Buzz entry, the bucket list. All right. Uh, Good, fun IMDb game all around. Uh, Mitchell Beaupre, thank you so, so, so much for being on this episode. I knew this was the movie that we wanted to have you on for, so I'm glad we could make this work. Uh, we will definitely have you on again to do Take This Waltz. We're not going to let come anybody back else. Uh, yeah. We've got that one earmarked for you. So um, Very excited. Uh, come back soon. Uh, listeners, that is our episode. If you would like more This Had Oscar Buzz, you can check out the Tumblr at thishadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. You should also follow our Twitter account at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz and our Instagram at thishadoscarbuzz. Mitchell, where can the listeners see and read and hear more from you? 
Yeah, you can uh, check out. I mean, first of all, thank you so much for having me. Uh, this was a very Our fun pleasure. time talking about my favorite movie on a podcast that I love very much. So uh, this was a blast. You. Can't wait to come back for Take This Waltz. Uh, that is going to be a different toned episode. <laughs> <I hope you. laughs> yes. But uh, yeah, people can find me on Twitter at it is Mitchell or on Letterbox, letterbox.com slash Mitchell. Uh, got in there early and got my name as my user. Nice. Um, nice. yeah, I mean, I, yeah, podcast, uh, letterbox stuff, like all the good stuff over there. Um, I'm other places just, yeah, follow me on Twitter and I will post things that I'm doing. You are a good Twitter follow. I will, uh, I will vouch Thank for you. you people, people say that sometimes and it's you are. very you confusing to me. I feel like I'm not doing anything on there. Well, yeah, I Connor, feel like Connor said the same thing. You and I, you sort of came to my attention because Roxana, past guest Roxana Haddadi recommended you Shout for out, trivia um, when we did the trivia event. And I think that's when around the time you sort of like, you know, shifted into into my view on Twitter. But yeah, you're like, you're a really fun Twitter follow. So that's thank fun. you very much. Uh, Chris, where can the <laughs> listeners find you and your stuff? You can also find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at Chris v. File. That's F-E-I-L. I am on Twitter and Letterboxd at Joe Reed, Reed spelled R-E-I-D. We would like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mevius for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate, like, and review us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever else you get podcasts. A five-star review in particular really helps us out with Apple Podcast visibility. So catch a ride home in that Mr. Softy truck and then write something nice about us, won't you? That's all for this week, but we hope you'll be back next week for more buzz. Stop.